1: Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR.
2: Well, good morning. Happy Tuesday, folks. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you, 630 Ched. Welcome to the program here today. A lot of ground to cover. i got another busy one for you. The telephone number you want to join in the conversation today, 780 780- four nine six zero zero six three a couple of big stories out of ottawa that we'll touch on today the prime minister and the new american president joe biden will be holding a virtual meeting today the first virtual meeting uh between the two and i believe the first uh with the new president and any other world leader so what's being discussed today what are, are the issues that canada wants to advance here what are we expecting to get out of this so the two have a better relationship uh, than existed, you know, say last year, over the last four years, does that mean anything? So we'll talk about that today. Also, a vote in the House of Commons yesterday, there were no no votes. There were a lot of uh, abstaining votes, including from the prime minister and, and many of his cabinet ministers, but nonetheless, the House of Commons voted to approve a motion that recognizes what is happening to Uyghur Muslims in China is, in fact, a genocide. But what are the implications of that? What do we actually do with that now? Does it mean anything? We'll get into that on the program today. Coming up later on this morning, uh, you might have heard about this. Uh, Australia decided that they were going to try to regulate Facebook, Uh, more specifically Facebook news, and, and looking to get Australian news companies better compensation that sparked quite a rift with facebook it looks as though they've come up with a compromise and this is all relevant because canada is looking at going down the same path so we'll get to that coming up later on today a bunch of other stuff to get to as mentioned your calls your text all of that straight ahead I want to begin this morning though with a conversation about a very well-known elephant an elephant who has been at the center of some controversy for some years lucy the elephant at the edmonton valley zoo Now, look, I suppose ideally, yes, elephants would be with other elephants. Elephants would be in warmer climates. And and I suppose increasingly now there's a consensus around that point. But what to do with Lucy? And this has been a question for years. Is it safe? uh, Is it ethical to move... Lucy the elephant, in the condition she's in. She's getting up there in age. She does have some health issues. Should she be moved? Should she be left where she is? Well, famous animal activist Jane Goodall, who not too long ago came out and said that Lucy should be moved. Has had a change of heart and has decided that Lucy should remain where she is. So, joining us to talk more uh, about all of this uh, and the importance of of making these decisions and caring for Lucy. Very pleased to welcome the program here this morning, Gary Dewar, who is director of the Edmonton Valley Zoo. Uh, Gary, thank you so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. Uh, look i mean people know who jane goodall is obviously she she's got a lot of clout but in terms of the the valley zoo and and how you're approaching all of this and decisions with regard to lucy i mean are, are you in communication with jane goodall or or how how relevant or how important are are, are her views on this Well, certainly we, we certainly respect her opinion. She would, I would suggest is the world's leading conservationist. And
1: so when, when she released uh, that video in late December, um, pleading to Edmonton city council that they release Elf, uh, Lucy to uh, a sanctuary um, we were concerned and, and clearly with the information that uh, was contained in that video there was some inaccurate uh, facts and so I, I took it upon myself to reach out to her via uh, a letter uh, just to provide a more wholesome picture of Lucy and the assess- assessments that had been performed by external uh, experts and uh, just to paint a, a clearer picture of just what the prognosis is and and why our position is to to keep her here as opposed to to risk uh, her life by, by moving her. Um, I got a response, which I was just delighted with, and that, that was that she had reached out to uh, uh, her Canadian uh, representative with the, the Jane uh, Goodall Institute of Canada, saying there seems to be uh, some conflicting accounts of uh, Lucy's medical condition and the validity of the expert opinions and recommendations. So she directed um, uh, a veterinarian that sits on both the boards of her Canadian Institute and her American Institute uh, to do an investigation, uh, which involved reaching out to the various external uh, experts that had been involved in providing their uh, opinions and recommendations uh, in 2019. Uh, there were three different uh, veterinarians and uh, and so that's what this gentleman did. He, he reviewed all the reports he actually had interviews with a couple of them in-depth interviews and uh, following his review concurred that in fact um, that their recommendations uh, were valid that their credentials were legit and that if that were uh, it would be jeopardizing Lucy Health, she could in fact uh, die if she were to uh, if we were to attempt to move her to uh, a sanctuary. So it was great news, and uh, not to say that I'm you know best buds with uh, Doctor Goodall, but uh, I can say uh, I've at least exchanged emails, which is pretty cool. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah. Well, and, and that, that's good because I, I think it's important to have all the facts here because th- this would be obviously a big decision, one that would have some implications. So, w- what is it the people need to know about the the specifics of Lucy's situation? Because it's one thing to say, well, elephants should be here, elephants should be under these conditions, etc. But we're talking about a specific animal with some specific issues. So what do people need to know?
1: I think the first thing and for, foremost Rob is that our position is that we do not want to uh, house uh, in, the, in the long term. we do, do not wish to house elephants uh, and that if we could safely uh, move Lucy we would but she has some medical challenges and 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 I'll just touch a little bit on them on the collection of them so she's 45 as you mentioned in the preamble uh, which puts her in her geriatric years and uh, while her health is stable she she is um, suffering from a respiratory issue she breathes exclusively through her mouth which is not uh, typical for an elephant and 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 has sometimes uh troubles uh getting enough oxygen and so when she's in a stressful situation or involved in some strenuous uh activity you, she she's really struggling for breath and that's that's the concern about a move that it would be that stressful for her and and where she could possibly die she also has as an age uh, aging elephant has aches and pains from arthritis which uh, our care team here treat with with pain medication um, regular rehabilitation therapy uh, daily walks and laser treatments to reduce the swelling and uh, and inflammation I should say and then finally and this is something that's come up when we've had the uh, external experts come in and provide Provide recommendations to our care team. There's, their um, elephants in captivity are prone to foot issues, and it's really critical that she has great, healthy feet. And so, there's quite a regimen that our, our team put into her uh, her her feet conditioning, and this happens twice a day. She's uh, getting this, uh, um, um, it, uh, what would you say, like foot soaks and Epsom salts and apple cider vinegar. They, uh, they're, uh, they're, they're just putting all kinds of effort into ensuring that she's got really great feet and so that's been a huge effort um, we that her getting regular exercise a great controlled diet is important as well and so uh, our, our keepers she's getting out uh, several times a day on longer walks they're shorter when it's in the cooler temperature time but this regardless she does get out and uh, we do our best to provide her the best uh, life possible here and I think that's that's the key is that um, we we really do uh, given the conditions do our very best to provide her with a happy life. You know as a it's not um it's not normal for her not to be with other elephants but right. in in this case she has developed uh, a bond with her keepers it's just remarkable. So uh, Rob I've I've only been in this position now for about 4 months and I've just come to just see this uh, amazing relationship that these keepers have with her they are her family that she treats them like family they play games they, the kind of enrichment activities they, in, they they have with her are just uh, just re- really quite uh, heartwarming and she so respects them and just just uh, just just in love with them it's it's quite remarkable so while she doesn't have another elephant to spend uh, her days with she certainly has people that have the utmost uh, respect and care for Okay.
2: So in terms of going forward, and as you say, and this is the zoo's position, and, and I think you've laid it out very well. Obviously, even though Jane Goodall has had a, a change of heart here, it's it's certainly not going to make these questions go away, and there, there are others who insist, and will continue to insist, that, that Lucy should be moved. So what more can you do at this point, or is it a case of whenever this comes up, then you bring in the, the independent experts once again for an assessment, or, I mean, how do you address this going forward?
1: Sure, so we, we actually uh, bring in uh, uh, folks to do an independent assessment every year. That wasn't possible uh, last year uh, due to COVID. Uh, and we're also, we're always welcoming sort of the latest because her, her condition uh, evolves and we get new information every time we bring specialists in. It really helps inform our, our care program. So uh, so we were unable to do it in 2019. I should mention, though, the zoo employs a veterinarian. I think a lot of people don't, aren't aware of that. Uh, and she has developed a great uh, deal of expertise with elephants. She came to us uh, from the Grand Zoo where they house elephants as well. So she's she's had a, a history in providing care for elephants. So it's not like uh, no medical professionals have had a chance to review her. She sees uh, Lucy on a re- very regular daily basis. Um, but we do plan to bring in experts again this year when COVID permits. And the, the, the focus will be more on again her um, New new insights in terms of her future care. So, as I mentioned, she's reached her geriatric years and her needs are changing. So, it's about looking at the sort of the physical upgrades that we can make here, uh, adjustments to her diet and exercise regimen that will that will meet her ever uh, changing needs. And so, that's uh, our plan um, at least for this year is to to bring in a couple of folks that uh, will provide again that it's kind of like a second opinion, if you will, in terms right. of her future.
2: Future. Well, yeah, which which makes sense to do. And I mean, obviously, it adds some transparency to to all of this. But, um, you know, I, I suppose it's probably the case that it's not going to, to be enough for some. And, and so there's going to continue to be, I guess, this conversation continue to be calls to to move her. But that's that's the zoo's position.
1: Yeah, it, yeah, that's true. You know, it's, it's and it's such, you you hit it on the nose when you said it's been controversial. I mean, uh, just following the social media posts when uh, the Jane Goodall Institute statement came out, there were many people that were so delighted that perhaps this has been settled once and for all and and that they understand we're providing her with the best care possible and her best interests in mind. And there were others that thought this is just a crock. Someone's been paying Dr. Goodall, she's been employed by zoos, whatever the case case maybe so there, there it was just really um, um, curious I was curious just to see the, the varying kind of reactions to this and you're right there's folks that adamantly believe that she should not be here and we should make take any risks there might be in, in order for her to enjoy a better life somewhere else and 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 that's uh, that's that's their opinion I think what what I, I think is at the base of all of this is that whether they're uh, an animal activist or you're affiliated and work for our zoo here, uh, we all want the best for her. We want her to enjoy the best life possible. And, and so that's, that's certainly what we uh, w- what's evident with the passion that both sides have demonstrated.
2: Leave it there. Gary, thank you so much for making some time for us here this morning. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Rob. All right, take care. That is uh, Gary Dewar, director of the Edmonton Valley Zoo. And uh, so laying out the, the zoo's position on this, which again uh, not everybody's going to agree with. But I, I think the point about the, the challenges of moving her just can, cannot be overlooked. I don't think there's a lot of disagreement when it comes to elephants in, in zoos. And sure, if, if Lucy could be moved, I, I think everyone would probably be on the same page, that she'd be better off in, in a warmer climate, but, but especially being around other elephants. There was one sanctuary, I think it was in Tennessee, who said we'd be happy to take Lucy. And, and as Gary said, they, they would be willing to do that, but there's some real concern uh, about moving her. And I, I think, you know, Jane Goodall's response when she took the time to better understand all of this kind of speaks to that. That yeah, okay, um, I get it. So it, it it is what it is. I think uh, unfortunately. Uh, so I think we can only hope that uh, the zoo does everything it can to to look after her and, and however long she has remaining. And I think going forward, just, you know, the whole approach when it comes to elephants and zoos, that has fundamentally changed. All right, We've got to take a break here. A lot to get to on this Tuesday morning. Again, 780-496-0063 is the number. Rob Breckenridge with you on 630 Chen. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here at 630 Chet, just a few minutes before the bottom of the hour. Coming up after 930, we'll, we'll talk a bit more about this vote yesterday in the House of Commons. Uh, unanimous in the sense that there were no dissenting votes, but there were certainly some abstentions. Nonetheless, though, a conservative motion calling on Parliament to recognize uh, that what is happening to the ethnic Uyghur Muslim minority in China is, in fact, a genocide. So the House of Commons has said, yes, it is. It is that Well, okay. now what? What does that mean now going forward? So we'll talk about that coming up after 930. Uh, The other thing happening in uh, Ottawa today that we're uh, keeping an eye on, this uh, meeting, a virtual meeting between uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and U.S. President uh, Joe Biden. Now, it certainly seems like the two are are buds. I mean, I guess the the president's old enough to be uh, the prime minister's father, but they get along. Okay, great. But what does that mean? What, is is that is that relevant in, in any meaningful sense in terms of U.S. policy? There's kind of three big issues, isn't there? There's Keystone XL, Has the ship sailed on that, probably. Uh, there's the question of uh, Buy America and, and some of these protectionist provisions uh, that the president is looking at. And there's the issue of vaccines, which kind of falls under that umbrella of protectionism. And is the U.S. prepared to relent a little bit when it comes to exporting vaccines, right? There's a Pfizer plant right there in Kalamazoo, Michigan, not far from the Canadian border, but none of those vaccines are are coming our way. Can the prime minister get some concessions on any of those points? And if not, well, then so what if they get along better, right? At the end of the day, if the policies and the approach hasn't changed, then who really cares you know, if they're, they're buddies or not? So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll keep an eye on that. That's that's happening this morning as well. Uh, also on the program today, we'll talk about Facebook and Internet regulation. Canada is looking at following Australia's lead in, in trying to regulate uh, companies like Facebook and Google when it comes to news content. Now, it looks as though Facebook and Australia have kind of come to some sort of compromise because Facebook really didn't appreciate initially what Australia was trying to do, and they blocked uh, Facebook news uh, for folks in Australia. I don't know how that would go over here if that was the result, but uh, Canada is looking to follow Australia's lead. So what does that mean? We'll talk about that coming up uh, later on today. We're also gonna look at some fascinating new research about dreams. And some scientists in the US uh, figured out a way of basically communicating with people while they are
0: in a lucid dream state. So what does that mean?
2: mean for our understanding of not just dreaming but our understanding of sleep itself we'll get to that coming up that's at 11 o'clock this morning as mentioned time for your calls your texts along the way here Seven eight zero four nine six zero zero six three. 63 my name is rob breckenridge we're back with more right after this all right welcome aboard along the chorus radio network rob breckenridge with you here today a lot of ground to cover on this tuesday morning of course we got the big justin trudeau joe biden virtual meeting happening today And I guess the two are going to get along a lot better than was the case not too long ago. But what does that actually mean in practice? Does that mean anything for Canadians? Are we going to get the U.S. to budge on any of these big issues? So we'll uh, keep an eye on that. Uh, A lot of other stuff to get to, your calls, your tax, all of that uh, straight ahead. But I want to get to the news right out of the gate here. out of Ottawa yesterday... And it was a conservative motion that was up for a vote in the House of Commons yesterday. And it concerns the situation in China, specifically the plight of the ethnic minority Uyghur Muslim population. Uh, And certainly there have been some really, I think, disturbing and even horrific revelations that have come to light about uh, their treatment at the hands of the Chinese government. Does it reach the bar? Does it reach the threshold of a genocide? And increasingly, a lot of people believe so. And it's now the position of the House of Commons that it is indeed a genocide. That was what the conservative motion called for. That's what was voted for yesterday in the House of Commons. Now, there were no dissenting votes. However, there were a number of abstentions, including, most notably, the prime minister and his cabinet ministers. But all the liberals who did cast votes voted in favor of the motion. So is that now Canada's official position? Well, not quite. And even if it is, what does it mean in practice? Once we acknowledge that a genocide is happening somewhere, there are some obligations, at least in terms of the international conventions, uh, that Canada is a party to. So joining us to talk a bit more about uh, what this all represents and where this goes from here, very pleased to welcome to the program here this morning, Stephanie Carvin, Associate Professor of International Relations at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Professor Carvin, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
3: Thanks for having me on.
2: Uh, so a lot of questions this, this raises, doesn't it?
3: Yeah, it, well, it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, like, I mean, you know, it, it raises questions about the role of Parliament in um, foreign affairs. It raises questions about, you know, what, what does a declaration like this really mean? But I think the most important question is what comes next, right? right. I mean, you, Canada, you know, I get really frustrated sometimes. I'll be dead on with you. We seem to have really just kind of two... Tools in our in our foreign policy toolkit, and that's either we kind of shout about things, or we try to use sanctions in some kind of ham-fisted way. And you know, in this case, we seem to be making a lot of noise, but I don't see a lot of action being done, or even really proposed. So, you know, I think it's important to recognize the fact that you know there are, you know, at the very least, crimes against humanity taking place in this region of China, it's it's pretty much indisputable at this point. Um, But the question is, you know, beyond these kind of grand declarations, what what else are we doing? What are we going to do next?
2: Well, and that's true. And I, and I suppose in, in practice, nothing has changed from yesterday to today. I, I think this is a step in the direction of acknowledging the reality of the situation. But um, that, that has to involve much more than just statements, right, or, or angry letters and, and that kind of a response. So that is the question that if we're going to, to stand up and say, we think a genocide is occurring, we can't just sit back down.
3: Right, exactly. You don't you don't accuse a country of doing this and then, you know, plan to go to the Olympics kind of thing. I mean, um, you know, genocide is one of the most serious crimes in international law. It is I and forget international law, just morally, um, you know, it is it is, you know, basically suggesting that you are trying to destroy and whole or in part um, a segment of a particular group of people and that it is pretty, um, you know, serious. So I guess the question is, you know, what? I guess, this, and this is where my frustration is, like, you know, we do see these, uh, you know, desire to recognize that. And I don't want to condemn that too much because, you know, I mean, this is an important issue. To to be clear to your audience, there's somewhere between one to three million people that are believed to be in some kind of uh, concentration camp situation in China. And that's just in the camp that doesn't refer to just the general level of surveillance and and repression that goes on in this area of china as well so um it's good to draw attention to the issue but again my frustration is is i think there's more that we could be doing and uh you're not seeing that now the part of the problem is of course that the cabinet itself doesn't want to recognize that you know for whatever reasons they have whether it's political whether the fact that they're still trying to deal with of course our kidnapped canadians the two michaels in china um, you know, there's a whole host of reasons why they might not want to be there. But, you know, that that means that it's going to be harder to actually do things. But I would like to see some concrete pro- uh, proposals being put forward. We have in Parliament right now, and they met yesterday, a committee that looks at Canada-China relations in uh you know in in parliament there's so i would love to see some proposals from them as as some of you know we should be generating ideas as to how we could be moving forward on this a a little bit more than i think we actually are i worry that sometimes in canada we conflate tough rhetoric with real action and that's just not the case
2: no no that's an important point i i think the issue here though and i mean it speaks to why the government's been reluctant to officially acknowledge this is just more of a reluctance to to antagonize Beijing, perhaps even concern that that, that might mean uh, unfortunate things for the, for the two Michaels if if China's mad at us. It, it's it's just almost an unwillingness to rock the boat. So as much as the government talks about you know we want to better understand the situation, it just seems more like it stems from a place of of inaction. Is is that unfair? It, a
3: little bit, I think criticism is valid simply because, you know, it has taken so long to really see the government do things. But I'll give you an, a, a comparison. So last week, the government announced that it had um, over 50 countries sign an agreement, a declaration against hostage diplomacy. And this is where countries agree that if there is a, a situation where someone is being taken hostage and it's being used in diplomatic terms, that all the countries that have signed on to this will bring it up in their bilateral meetings with the government that's doing that. Now, no one actually said the C word, which is China, uh, when when this came out, but that was clearly the target of this initiative. And to me, that actually will have a much greater impact. Right? That kind of institution building takes a long time to do. It's boring. No one really understands. <laughs> you know, it, it's hard to sell the general population. But I trust me when I say that will actually have. Meaningful lasting effect if it works as planned. And that means a bit more than than just making these declarations. So um, so so you know without especially when they're not followed up by any particular concrete action. So the Trudeau government, I think when it started out, and just to get back to the point of your criticism, was trying to go gently about this, but I think it's learned that this kind of gentle approach has just is not producing results, and, and it won't with regards to our relationship with China. So it is doing these kinds of things, turning to other kinds of, you know, developing other kinds of diplomatic tools that I think will really pay dividends in the future. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do think that they could be taking a, a much more strong stance against China, for example, uh, you know, one of the things I don't understand is why are we still allowing Chinese foreign investment in sectors that are sensitive or where there is a risk that Canadians could be taken hostage in retaliation if we tried to bring the rule of law against such a company, mm-hmm. right? I mean, so if there's a company, a state champion company, state-owned enterprise, and the, that company, you know, there's a potential that, you know, it, it's that China could retaliate if we ever tried to put criminal uh, prosecutions against that company by taking Canadians hostage. Why are we allowing China to invest in Canada <laughs> you know, and, and mm-hmm. having these kinds of joint ventures and deals? And, and also, you know, like, why are we selling China's surveillance technology? We should be putting export restrictions on technology that could be being used against the Uyghur people. We could be funding initiatives to help promote the Uyghur culture. Uh, maybe back here with the with the population in Canada, there's a small population, but you know we could be trying to promote their culture to help them try to preserve it. So these are kinds of things and steps that I think we could be taking that the federal government could do. That you know I think would send an important signal. We're not the United States. We're not a large country, but there are steps that other countries could then look at those steps and maybe follow them as well so this is what i'm talking about like we have to move from just condemning to acting and i'm just not seeing this and so i'd like to see a lot more ideas proposed by the government and the opposition but ultimately it is up to the government to enact some of these things in place
2: well, I mean, you mentioned the United States, and, and perhaps then this becomes relevant to the conversation today between the prime minister and the president. It, it's certainly easier, I think, to, to act on all of this, to act on principle, if, if we know that not only does the U.S. have our back, but we're kind of on the same page as the U.S. as it pertains to China. That wasn't always the case or wasn't always clear uh, over the last four years. So how important is, is the U.S. in all of this? I think it's
3: it's, you know the importance should not be understated. um you, I noticed you you mentioned already uh, in in the lead up to this segment that yes, there is going to be this meeting between Trudeau and Biden today. That's important. It's widely believed that china is will be discussed during this meeting and and how to go about that. But, as you said, the last four years, not so much, so, and it's not really clear, you know, I mean, we have Biden for four years. We don't know what's going to happen <laughs> in four mm. years in four years' time. So Canada also needs to think about, you know, being being, we absolutely should take advantage of the fact that we have a president who's willing to work with us on trying to solve some of these issues. It's fundamentally important. It will make our lives so much easier. That said, there's no reason why we also shouldn't be looking to develop some independent ideas and tools and means of dealing with these things just in case, you know, it goes back to the way it was because there's a good chance that that could happen. So, yes, the United States is important here, and we should, you know, our lives will be, you know, much easier as Canadians were for having a kind of more friendly and reliable U.S. government in place. But one of the things is, you know, I think the lessons of the past four years, particularly in our relationship with China, but not just China, Saudi Arabia, um, India, other countries that we've been having trouble with, is we need to develop our own tools. Right. We need to be a little less reliant on the U.S. and start doing things for ourselves. And like we haven't really taken those steps yet. And that's, you know, for someone who studies this for a living, it's just kind of me, um, I don't know, kibetching on the radio. Is that, can I do that? Um, but <laughs> I, thank you for, I feel like next time you guys should provide me a couch to lie down on um, while well, well, I yell these things into on, on the airwaves. But I mean, yes. this is where I'd like to see Canada go. All of this suggests that, you know. I always think it's positive when Parliament is interested in foreign affairs issues. But, you know, we I would love to see Canada itself develop uh, a toolkit for dealing with these situations because, unfortunately, China isn't the only case of, of these kind of worldwide repressions. So what are we doing? How are we uh, going to develop toolkits that, to support these kind of populations that are being repressed? And, um, you know, how do we move forward to, to kind of have our own independent policies so we're not kind of you know, clenching our fists every four years trying to figure
2: out who's going to be president of the United States. We'll leave it there. Uh, Professor Carvin, I always appreciate the insight. Thanks for joining us here this morning. Thank you
3: so
2: much. All right, take care. Stephanie Carvin, the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University, and her focus on international relations, international law, and uh, her thoughts on what this vote represents. Look, I would have voted for the motion 100%, but it's important to think about Okay, what comes next? What does it mean now? What what is our next move here? And there's a whole lot of ground between, you know, wagging our fingers on the one extreme and liberating the camps on the other. So what does it mean in practice for Canada and Canadian foreign policy? What kind of tools do we have or should we have at our disposal when it comes then to responding to a situation like this? The problem is the government is still a few steps back. The prime minister in the cabinet, as mentioned, abstained from the vote yesterday. The prime minister, when asked, has talked about how reluctant he is to use the word genocide, that it's not a word that should be used lightly. All of that, of course, undermined by what he said two years ago about this very country, Canada. And so that's a big problem for him. You can't stand there and say Canada is guilty of an ongoing genocide but I really am not sure about China. That's just not a credible position. And that's part of the problem we box ourselves into here, at least that the prime minister has boxed himself into. So like I say, uh, the prime minister is uh, meeting uh, virtually with U.S. President Joe Biden today. China likely to be on the agenda. Whatever else is on the agenda, I guess we'll wait and see. Probably Keystone, unless maybe that ship has sailed. Uh, by American provisions, perhaps vaccines, maybe a few other issues. So any further details on that meeting, we'll bring them to you. A lot more to get to on the program on this Tuesday morning. Let's take a quick time out here. We'll come back, set up the rest of the show, Got a few things to get to before the top of the hour. It's Rob Breckenridge with you here on the Chorus Radio Network. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you on the Chorus Radio Network, filling in today, the rest of this week, filling in next week, and then, well, then I'm not sure. Uh, our number here in Calgary, 403-974-8255. In Edmondson, 780-496-0063. Now, there is the question. It was was up for debate yesterday as a part of this motion. And and certainly, look, I, I think the conservative motion was was necessary. I certainly would have voted for it. I applaud the parliamentarians who did vote for it. shame on on the prime minister and his cabinet for running away from the vote. At least stand up and vote against it then. I mean, the idea of abstaining from the vote, it's it's just cowardice. Here's the thing, though, look, and, and there's there's no escaping this. There's no reconciling a position to say on the one hand, yep, that's genocide happening there. And yes, we should still go to the Olympics. Like, I I don't see how you could maintain that position. So certainly if we're going to talk about what next, that's got to be one of the first things we address. If we're going to acknowledge that what is happening to Uyghur Muslims at the hands of the Chinese government is genocide, then how on earth can we be a party uh to to the big party that the chinese government wants to throw in february of next year the winter olympics we we can't go can we i mean how hypocritical would that be for us to say you guys are guilty of genocide and hey when's your party sure we'll be there it just it doesn't make any sense so that's one of the the i think certainly the the uh, most obvious implications of this is we, we can't we can't go can we so I don't know, and that's going to be a tough one. But look, I mean, if, you know, the principle is, is, is what matters, doesn't it? We can't turn a blind eye to what's going on there. And if so, how can we go to the Olympics? How can we be a part of that? You know, there, there are all kinds of reasons why we should boycott the Olympics. Certainly the situation with the two Michaels is one of them. You know, if, if China is not averse to essentially kidnapping Canadian citizens... For foreign policy purposes, then how can we, in good conscience, send uh, hundreds and hundreds of Canadian citizens to that country? Right, that doesn't make sense either. So it's it's something to think about, isn't it? If we're going to stand on principle and say this is what's going on, and we're going to call a spade a spade, whether China likes it or not, we can't turn around and say, "Hey guys, yeah, we'll, we're happy to come to your Olympics next year." That just doesn't add up. All right, uh, here's a text that's a little sympathetic to the prime minister it says Rob maybe Trudeau and the others felt the need to abstain in order to protect the two Michaels also look at the Meng Wanzhou fiasco maybe they only wanted one fight on their hands with China well that that may be a part of it but I don't know if that's necessarily defense of the, of the Trudeau government it speaks to their inaction and if we're afraid to say things because we're trying to protect the two Michaels well that's rewarding this kind of hostage diplomacy, isn't it? I mean, that's kind of the whole point of it in the first place, If China's going to kidnap two Canadian citizens and make it known to us that they're in in a precarious situation. They're doing that because they don't want us to take these positions. They want us to to keep our, our mouth shut about this sort of thing. That's why they call it hostage diplomacy. So yeah, if, if we're abstaining, if the prime minister's abstaining because he's trying to protect the two Michaels, then that's... That's sending a message yet again to China that this works. And and in the long run, it puts more Canadians in danger, doesn't it? If every time we run away from one of these controversies because we want to protect the two Michaels, it sends a message that this works. If you want to influence Canadian foreign policy, if you want Canada to turn a blind eye to what you're doing, this is the way to achieve that. And that's really dangerous. So whether it's one fight or two fights or three fights, ultimately it doesn't matter. I mean, it, it is really all just one fight, and we already are in a fight then with China in that sense. So I don't know that, that acknowledging the reality of what's happening there necessarily changes the dynamic of that fight. We shall see. All right, uh, still to come on the program this morning, uh, speaking of foreign policy, Canada is now talking about uh, sanctions on Myanmar. And that's been in the news lately, that situation there. So what is going on? What is the concern? We'll get some uh, explanation of that coming up after 10 o'clock. After 10.30 this morning, we'll talk about regulating the Internet or regulating big tech companies like Facebook and Google. Canada seems intent on following Australia's lead, and initially it didn't look like Australia's plan was going all that well. They ended up in a big fight with Facebook. Facebook was blocking news pages to readers in Australia. But word today that they've worked out some compromise. So does that mean we should follow Australia's lead? Or is this kind of a, a warning that maybe we should take a different approach? So we'll talk about that coming up after 1030. 11 o'clock this morning, this is some really interesting research out of the U.S. about dreams and sleep. Is it possible that while you're sleeping, while you're in a dream state, that you're still aware of what's going on? Is it possible that you could even have a communication, have a conversation with somebody? So these researchers show that it is possible to essentially tap into somebody's dream and convey messages to them, and messages that they're even able to respond to. Some kind of a kind calls to mind that, that movie Inception, but it is quite fascinating. We'll get to that coming up uh, later on this morning. Let's get back to the phones, though. And uh, this is Tom. Tom, go ahead. Hey, Tom, you there?
4: Uh, yes. Go ahead, Tom. Uh, yeah, hi, uh, uh, rob i wanted to actually make a couple of, um, of points uh, given that the, what we've been dealing with with china for the last couple of years for sure or at least that uh, uh we need as a country and i'm sure all the countries should be doing the same we need to rethink our manufacturing policies um uh, we've given the country China's now the second strongest economy in the world and uh I, I think uh, if we revisited our manufacturing uh, environment in Canada, we might need to reemphasize or encourage it, encourage its growth uh, rather than uh, giving China more and more power and influence uh, that it seems to be continuing to obtain.
2: Uh, yeah, that's an interesting point, Tom. I appreciate the phone call. Uh, we're up against the top of the hour here. A lot more still to get to on this Tuesday morning. Rob Breckenridge with you here on the Chorus Radio Network. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you on this Tuesday morning along the Chorus Radio Network. We'll have more time for your calls uh, coming up later in this hour as well. We'll talk about this whole idea of of regulating companies like Facebook and Google. And and this is all a dispute over news stories and news links and news revenue. Australia thought, you know, we're going to go after Facebook. We're going to get them to cough up a little bit more. Facebook said, no, you're not. And they put all kinds of, of barriers in place when it came to, to uh, users in Australia accessing uh, news on Facebook. Seems like they've resolved that, but is that the path Canada should go down? We'll talk about that. Uh, off the top in this hour, and this gets back to the issue of uh, foreign policy and uh, the government's direction on foreign policy, whether there's a coherent approach on foreign policy. Uh, what are we going to do about the situation in Myanmar? Uh, as you probably know, and maybe you've seen there's there's one kind of iconic uh, image that's been going around, almost taken on a, a meme sense to it, where there's a woman leading like this kind of dance fitness class on on this um, pedestal kind of, and, and in behind her you see these these military trucks moving toward the capital, and this was the the coup essentially there that uh, took place a few weeks ago. Story uh, this week here, it says protesters gathered in Myanmar's biggest city on Monday, despite the ruling uh, Junta's threat to use lethal force against people who join a general strike against the military's takeover three weeks ago. Got the story this morning, though, uh, The Canada is uh, looking to impose sanctions on on Myanmar, specifically uh, certain officials there. But do we need to do more? What is the concern about the situation? Where are things headed in man? Mar, joining us uh, for some thoughts, as someone who's uh, a close observer of what's happening in uh, that part of the world, very pleased to welcome to the program here this morning, James Trottier, uh who is a, a fellow of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, a lawyer, former career Canadian diplomat. Uh, James, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program.
5: Well, thank you for having me.
2: Uh, in terms of, of level of concern here, in terms of where things are headed, what it could mean for, for people there, and, and how Canada should respond, where, where's your concern level at?
5: I spent five years um, uh, going to uh, Myanmar uh, for uh, as the political counselor of the uh, Canadian embassy, and um, so in a lot of ways, this is a return to the uh, to the past, um, and the past was uh, uh, bloody. Um, with uh, crackdowns by the military in 1988 and in in 2008 so that's one route that that uh, the military could pursue um, the second route is negotiations and some sort of face-saving um, um, agreement with uh, Aung San Suu Kyi and the uh, democracy movement uh, but their but their track record of the military in um, uh, in Myanmar is that they've rarely uh, missed an opportunity to take a hardline approach.
2: So let's take a step back then. What, what, were, what were the circumstances then that led to this coup? And is it, is it right to call it a coup? I mean, it certainly seems in, in it, all senses like it was one.
5: It, it's a it's a classic coup with, uh, yeah. with uh, midnight, well not midnight arrest, but pre-dawn arrests of the uh, leadership, Aung uh, mm-hmm. San Suu Kyi and her colleagues. And then, um, uh, Takeover of the communications facilities and key ministries, uh, etc. Um, so it, it it was a it has all the hallmarks of a classic coup. And and basically the evolution of this or why they chose to act at this time was they just had an election uh, in November, which um, Aung San Tushi's uh, National League for Democracy won overwhelmingly, 83%, including I might add. Um, a lot of votes in military areas where military families were voting, as well as uh, civil service votes, so she got eighty three percent of the of the popular vote. The military had their own party, and um, as usual, their own party lost and then they call, they called uh, fraud and uh, and they moved, uh, they moved against her just the day before parliament was to meet. but this is an old story because um, as you know, she was under house arrest for off and on for 15 years uh, and uh, often, uh, apart from that, uh, barred from the political process. They opened up the political process to the opposition in 2010 and 2011, but they never were genuine in that. They always intended to keep her and her party uh, under control, but they haven't been able to break the hold that she has over the population. And that enrages the military who frankly cannot stand her. She's a woman, she's a civilian, and she's uh, a, she's the glaring sort of figure uh, of opposition to their, to their rule. So uh, this was kind of the, the election in November for them was the final, was the final break. But I think that in this case they may have, they may have bitten off uh, more than they can true, because I think that, as I said, it's, a, it's kind of a return to the past, the repression of the past, but this is a, a different past. It's a digitalized past with a very uh, uh, tech-savvy um, uh, population, especially among among young people who, as you see, are out in the streets in uh, in force.
2: You know, it's interesting because, you know, certainly there was the debate in Ottawa yesterday about uh, the situation in China and, and the Uyghur Muslim population. I suppose there's a, there's a parallel of sorts in, in Myanmar regarding uh, the Rohingya, the uh, the Muslim minority in in Myanmar. And, you know, the situation prior to this coup is that, um, you know, the, the government of Myanmar, and there was such promise. I mean, um, you know, you talk about uh, Xu Ji and... This is someone who had won the Nobel Peace Prize. We, we'd made her a, an honorary citizen of this country. And, you know, certainly the last few years, our, our view has shifted considerably. So are we now in a position where, you know, we're, we're, we're back to defending her? And are we overlooking the, the issues of the last few years?
5: Not overlooking, but, but I think that the coup uh, puts things in perspective and it shows just what she's up against. Um, uh, basically, in dealing with the tragedy of the Rohingya situation, she was uh, faced between a rock and a hard place. There uh, was basically a wedge issue for for the military. They knew that they uh, either she could uh, oppose their activities in the Rohingya area, and that would lose the support of the Burmese population, who are uh, unfortunately ferociously anti-Rohingya, or. Um, she could um, uh, not oppose them, and then she would lose the support of the international community. So this is exactly the box that they they wanted to put her in. They've always wanted to put her in, and I think that you know the international community um, had uh, uh, unfortunately elevated her to the position of a of a secular saint at a certain point, so and sure. she's not a secular saint. She's a she's a uh, she, you know, she's a politician and a and a leader of her people, and so. Um, uh, her fall from grace was sort of proportional to her earlier elevation. She went from, she went from heaven in the international community's uh, eyes to, to hell. But the, the reality is that she is a, a leader of her population, uh, but not a flawless leader, and one of her blind spots is the Rohingya population. It's a blind spot for the, for the Burmese population. But as I said earlier, there, right now we're at a junction, the military can either will either go down one route and they will suppress the popular uprising with blood on the streets in 1988 there were thousands who were killed in the in the crackdown then or they will enter into negotiations with none other than Aung San Suu Kyi and, and this time again She'll be dealing with the devil, in a sense. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I think that the international community has to get real and has to realize that that's a real politique in that country. You either deal with the military or you don't, and then, and then you end up um, uh, with the uprising being suppressed in the streets. So.
2: So both short-term and long-term, then, looking at our approach to to the situation there, I mean, we do have, at least in the short term, some tools at our disposal, sanctions in particular, Magnitsky Law sanctions, we can target certain individuals. Does that seem like a good place to start, or what would you like to see?
5: It's a a good place to start, but I think the international community as a whole has to take um, a very active role, and I think um, uh, Joe Biden and The American administration, his administration, is in a position to, to take a, a leadership uh, role in this, and I think that um, it has to be brought home to the generals that uh, they they have a choice: they can either perpetuate their own rule, or they can, uh, which means total isolation, which can mean total isolation of uh, of uh, of Myanmar, including um, tech isolation, um, or they can um, look for uh, take a step back. And, and adjust their uh, approach and adjust their, their policy. And, you know, as I said, in, in the past, there's been this uh, tendency to take a hard line stance, but there's also been a, a, another uh, tendency at other stages to, to, to actually negotiate, and that's how Aung San Suu Kyi came to at least share power as a junior partner with the with the military uh, in uh, 2015, um, so they have they have a choice, and I think the I think the international community, including Canada, should uh, push and prod the military to go down one route and and not the other route.
2: Well, what about these protests or this talk of a you know a spring revolution? I mean, how how real is this movement, and does it it's, to a certain extent represent uh, almost a, a third side in all of this, as opposed to uh, you know the government versus the military? I mean, are, are we taking the the side of the citizenry here? How do we find well, out? Well,
5: and the the citizenry is totally behind, Aung San Suu and okay. and and her movement. I mean, this is not a breakaway. This is not a third force. This is this is solidly for uh, her and 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 her party, um, and as a, a, again uh, the military in the past have uh, cracked down on such protests and in two thousand and eight, they shot monks in the streets who were protesting monks and students this time the um, Protests are actually uh, more, wi- more widely based. So you have um, 75% of civil servants are reported to be out. Uh, bankers are out. Uh, medical staff in hospitals are out. Uh, uh, technicians are out. Railway workers are out. So you have this mass this mass uh, uprising, but uh, there's a monopoly of force in, in, Bur- in Myanmar, and it's the military who has that monopoly. They have the guns on, on their side if they choose... If they choose to uh, to do that, but it will be at the price of total um, uh, isolation and economic, uh, and, and economic, I wouldn't say collapse, but but uh, economic stagnation for years to come for them. Just at a time when when Myanmar has been trying to kind of emerge into um, the Southeast Asia uh, uh, economic space.
2: All right, we'll see where that all goes from here. James, appreciate your insight and uh, thanks for making some time for us here today.
5: Yeah, thank you for having me.
2: All right, all the best. James Trotje at the uh, Canadian Global Affairs Institute. He's a fellow there, a former career Canadian diplomat, and certainly has worked uh, in uh, Myanmar. So some interesting insight on the situation there and maybe how Canada and other countries need to deal with that. Uh, We'll take a break here. Plenty more to get to on the Tuesday edition of the program. Rob Breckenridge sitting in. You're listening to The Chorus Radio Network. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you on a Tuesday morning uh, on The Chorus Radio Network. Filling in this week and next week. Uh, So I'm not the replacement here, folks. Uh, I've got my show uh, in the afternoon, at least uh, in in Calgary. I guess uh, folks might know that. Uh, So I'll be in this time slot for this week and next week. And then, well, I'm not sure what then. Uh, But anyway, we we still got a lot to get to today and uh, over the next couple of weeks. But uh, the phone number here in Calgary, 403-974-8255. In Edmonton, 780-496-0063. Uh, we will have some time at uh, 11.30 for phone calls. Uh, coming up after 10.30, we'll talk about this idea of regulating Facebook and, and Google. What does the Australia experience uh, tell us about that approach? And certainly everything we've heard from Canada's uh, heritage minister uh, suggests that we're we hell-bent on emulating what Australia did. But is that, maybe it's a good idea, maybe it's not. I don't know. We'll talk about that coming up uh, after 10.30. And um, after 11 o'clock, as mentioned, some really interesting new research on uh, on sleep and dreams and the uh, idea that you can communicate with somebody who's who's in a dream state, this so-called lucid dream state. In this uh, research project, they found that people in that state were actually able to respond to some questions. And, and the funny thing about it, and maybe you've had that, where... I know there are times where, you know, like uh, your alarm's going off and a song's playing and the song kind of works its way into your dream. It's the same kind of thing. So participants in this study sort of reported that, that when you were asking me those questions, it was all in the context of a dream, like the question was coming out of a radio, the question was coming out of the mouth of of somebody you were talking to in your dream. But despite it all, you were still kind of aware that you were dreaming. So we'll talk about that coming up after 11 o'clock as well. Uh, Some time for your text, too. Uh, And this one, getting back to the whole question of China and the two Michaels. Uh, Regarding the plight of the two Michaels, to keep them from falling under the radar, all airplanes flying to China and Hong Kong would have pictures of the two Michaels painted on the planes, also with words saying, free our Michaels. This would include all planes from G7 countries, put pictures of flags from all these countries on the planes. This would send a message to China that we won't let this go away. This would also be the most effective display to send to China at the Olympic Games. Yeah, It would be, certainly be provocative. It's interesting. I, I wonder what kind of a response that would get from China. And maybe it puts the, the airlines in kind of an awkward position to sort of be the messenger for our, our foreign policy positions. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. That would certainly get their attention. Yeah, we had a call earlier, too, talking about manufacturing. And I don't know if it's as simplistic as it says, Rob, I think Canada needs to start manufacturing a lot of things that are made in China. I'm sure it might cost a little more, but we need to cut out China, a lot of things we get from that country. Everything you look at says made in China. Well, it would cost a lot more for one. Uh, And and for two, I mean, look, there there are other options, right? We've got now the Trans-Pacific Partnership. There are other countries that, that we could have those kinds of trading relationships with. You know, Vietnam's an obvious one. You know, maybe fostering more of those relationships with India. I think there are alternatives to China i don't know if, if it makes sense to do a lot of that manufacturing here just in terms of the cost and 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 all of that plus i think you know it's not as though we we've lost a lot of those manufacturing jobs there is still a lot of manufacturing that happens here but you know a lot of it's so automated now so i'm not sure if that's necessarily the the way we need to go but i get there's a frustration in that we're so economically dependent on china so the if the idea is let's find ways of Being a lot less dependent on China, I'm I'm all for that. All right. Much more to get to on the program here today. Rob Breckenridge with you on the Chorus Radio Network. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on the Chorus Radio Network. Let's talk about big tech and whether there's a case to be made for further regulation of big tech, specifically Google and Facebook. Now, this concerns uh, news content and the news industry. Organization in Canada called News Media Canada that's been pushing the federal government uh, to take this kind of an approach. And look, all we've all the signals we've heard uh, from the government, from the Heritage Minister in particular, that we're definitely looking at going down this path. And the so-called Australian model is held up. And so essentially, then Australia wants these companies to to cough up, to pay up to pay media organizations for the news content they use as part of their online search and social media services. And so it becomes an interesting question. At what point are they using this content as opposed to directing people to that content? Right? If, if I write something or I publish something and uh, people are sharing a link to it on Facebook, that's good for me because presumably people are, are clicking on it. But it's, it's good for Facebook, too, because obviously then there's, there's content available and people are sharing it and people are engaging via Facebook. So Australia took that approach, and I suppose it seems straightforward enough, but it didn't go so well initially uh, that Facebook wanted no part of this. Uh, there was a Facebook news blackout essentially in Australia, although word today that uh, there's some kind of a compromise perhaps here. A story from Reuters says Facebook backed down from its news blackout in Australia after the government agreed to amend its legislation, forcing the tech giant and Google to pay local publishers for content. So maybe there is a way to to proceed with something like this, but uh, this shows kind of the, the pitfalls of that. And anyway, Joining us for some some thoughts on, you know, the lessons learned, I guess, so far from Australia's experience and, and how we should approach this this whole question in the first place. Very pleased to welcome to the program here, the supporting Dwayne Winsack, who is a professor at the School of Journalism and Communication at Carleton University. Dwayne, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program.
6: All right. Well, thank you very much for having me, Rob. Pleasure to be here.
2: Uh, so I don't know. Is this this compromise? I mean, is, is this a happy ending to the Australia versus Facebook uh, situation or what, what do you read into that?
6: Yeah. Well, I think it's too early to tell. You know, I woke up this morning and scrambled to try to see what the latest uh, breaking news uh, was uh, in Australia. And, you know, I think you just gave a, a nice summary uh, of it. It looks like there's uh, a bit of uh, revision to the bill going on, a bit of a compromise, more time uh, for Facebook in particular Uh, to strike the kinds of deals with Australian uh, news media companies like the ones that uh, Google had been doing uh, over the last two weeks in the run-up to this bill actually becoming law. So um, too early to tell, a lot of moving bits and pieces here, (laughs) um, but some interesting developments, I think, again, as you've noted.
2: So let's take a step back because, you know, I think that, I mean, the conversation that's happening here is similar to the conversation that's happening in Australia and other countries. Uh, So what has precipitated this, in in your view? Why are we at this point where, you know, this is all on the table?
6: Yeah, well, I think uh, what Australia is doing and what we're thinking about doing here in Canada is to face the reality that online uh, services have now become highly concentrated around a small number of tech giants, uh, in particular in the online advertising uh, market. We have two companies, uh, Google and Facebook, that have uh, a duopoly, Basically, two companies controlling in Australia about uh, two-thirds of uh, online advertising revenue in that country. And in Canada, it's around 80% uh, of online advertising. So this is a a very large and fast-growing market. And right now, two companies dominate it. And so I think what you're seeing with Australia is they're trying to deal with the reality of that market dominance and to create a regulatory framework that will try to offset those power imbalances and allow news media companies to get a, a better shake uh, at um, eking out an existence from this online advertising system.
2: It's interesting because, I mean, look, there, there's no Google News unless someone's coming up with this news. I mean, Google doesn't generate news. Facebook doesn't generate news. So, so certainly they rely on these news companies. On the other hand, I mean, Google and Facebook say – this is good for you guys. We're, we're providing links to your content. People are accessing your content through us. So, so who's right?
6: Yeah. Well, you know, unfortunately, I don't think there are, uh, you know, uh, any clear cut good guys uh, <laughs> in this uh, in this regulatory battle uh, right now. You know, I think both companies can probably get away uh, without uh, the news. I mean, Facebook uh, constantly points to the fact that. Uh, news accounts for a very small portion of all of the uh, content available through the Facebook uh, service, and I think they're probably right on that. But the problem is, is that both companies have built up an online advertising system around uh, content that they uh, link to, make available through their services, and so on. And in that online advertising market, The problem is is that news media companies have very little insight into how that uh, market works. They have very little insight into how advertising is actually placed around their own uh, content. They get no insight into uh, the audience uh, data. Uh, They get no insight into how the whole advertising uh, market uh, works. And so they're trying to crack open this black box to get a better Mm -hmm. peek inside. And the uh, assumption is, is once they get a better peek inside and everybody's able to see how the inner workings of these black box machines work, that they're going to be able to cut a better deal. And I mean, it is. Basically, anybody that's looking at this now, and there's been a number of investigations around the world, including in Australia and the UK and elsewhere, that basically show the whole online advertising system is murky. It's based on a lot of fraudulent data about audiences. There's a new case out in the U.S. that basically says Facebook has been overstating the reach uh, of its uh, audiences and selling advertising around these overstated uh, figures for audience size and engagement and basically creaming off uh, the excess revenue from these fraudulent figures upon which the whole online advertising system is, is based. Mm-hmm. So bringing all this stuff out into the sunshine, I think, is meant to kind of clean up what some people are derisively calling the dirty web.
2: Well, and it's interesting because I do think a lot of this comes down to ad dollars, and, and certainly for traditional media outlets, uh, having to compete with Google and Facebook for ad dollars has, has been a real challenge. And I, I think a lot of this conversation ultimately comes back to that question. It's about ad dollars. It's about uh, revenue. And if look, if if domestic media if they can't make a go of it, then you cease to exist, right? So it, it it kind of becomes existential in in that sense. So. I mean, does does a lot of this come down to, then, the fight over ad dollars, maybe more than anything else?
6: Well, it certainly does. But, again, like so much of this stuff, it's so complicated. You know, I I don't think that, uh, you know, commercial media in this country or anywhere else around the world have any God-given right to have a lock on advertising. And the reality is, is that um facebook and google and other uh, ad-based internet services have come along and proven much more effective at delivering audiences to advertisers and therefore media companies are behind the eight ball uh there the other kind of problem here is that commercial news media companies in this country and in australia have been in trouble for a lot longer uh than google and facebook have been around as significant forces and a lot longer than even the internet itself Uh, has been a significant uh, force uh, in the world. I mean, we can trace the uh, woes of uh, newspapers in this country back to the 1980s when circulation peaked, and it's fallen ever since. Advertising revenue peaked in the 1990s, kind of stayed flat for half a decade there, and has been falling uh, for the last basically two decades. And there's a lot of self-inflicted wounds uh in canada by media companies that went through kind of an orgy of consolidation in the 1990s and early 2000 that saddled these companies with basically untenable balance sheets and debts. precisely at the time that they needed all hands on deck to engage uh with the emerging internet centric environment and the new uh goliaths on the block so this is not an easy problem to solve Um, And I don't like to uh, lead or lend to the picture that somehow the news media companies uh, in this country or in Australia are the innocents here who have been, you know, beleaguered by, uh, you know, the rapacious, as I call them, vampire squids from Silicon Valley. It's much more complex than this. Um, So, But the Australian model, I do think, actually provides us with a good starting place to have a grown-up talk about what needs to be done.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting because there there are a lot of competing issues at play here. But I I guess from the Canadian government's perspective, they got to figure out what is our interest in all of this? Are are we concerned about journalism? Are we concerned about, you know, companies that that pay tax here? Are we concerned about fairness? Are we concerned about, you know, the way that big tech operates? And and I guess if the government's going to go down a certain path, you need to answer that question first. What is our objective Mm -hmm. here? What are we trying to achieve? What's the broader national interest. Do you get the sense that they've figured that out yet? Um, It's a
6: work in progress. You know, I've been compiling a list of all these public inquiries that have been taking place around the world because my head's just been spinning trying to take, uh, you know, keep track of what's going on. And and that list now that I've uh, compiled with a colleague from Switzerland now has 95 entries long and most of those have taken place in the last three to five years. Right. So there's definitely a scramble to sort things out. But in many ways, I think what the Australian case teaches us, but what is proven to be so elusive is that there are really three cornerstones here that I think apply to all countries, that if they were dealt with honestly, as opposed to various lobbying groups trying to kind of uh, bend public policy to private interests, we could get somewhere. The first, I think, the major common problem that we see in Australia and in Canada is media concentration, right? And what the Australian Code basically does is it kind of sets aside uh the domestic affairs where there's an extraordinarily high level of media concentration with the news corps and murdoch uh company uh at its core um has basically been setting the agenda right and here we see the same thing through news media canada the incumbents trying to set the public policy uh agenda wrapping themselves in the flag um but not considering their own uh, contributions to this problem and the issue of concentration. The second thing I think is that we've got a problem with uh, um, personal data and privacy protection. And neither the big tech giants or uh, the traditional media companies want to see stronger personal uh, privacy and data protection uh, rules. In fact, one of the weaknesses of the Australian code in my uh, view is that instead of trying to rein in the kind of rapacious surveillance capitalism model, as some uh, people call it, that motors uh, Facebook and Google, basically what the Australian model says is that they're going to give the traditional media companies a bigger slice of the big data pie. And then the last thing, um, I'll just say here, Rob, to finish, and I'll make it quick, is that journalism is a public good, and it is essential to a functioning democracy. And so we need to understand that public good, element to it and support it properly. And we can earmark tax revenue from big tech and other countries to that purpose. Well,
2: we'll leave it there. Uh, more from you at nationalobserver.com, by the way. Uh, Professor Winsick, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. appreciate this.
6: Okay. Well, thank you very much for having me, Rob.
2: All right. All the best. Take care. Uh, That is uh, Dwayne Winsek uh, joining us uh, on the line. He's a a professor of journalism and communication at Carleton University, writes at nationalobserver.com. So yeah, I think it puts it in perspective that they're kind of separate issues here that that are kind of getting all blurred into one. That it's not necessarily Google and Facebook versus journalism. But I mean, there's, there's part of that there. So I think the federal government needs to figure out what they see as the issue, what they see as the national interest, and what it is they're trying to achieve. None of that is really clear, which I, I think that that's, that's a big problem. If we're going to set down a, a path of implementing policy, and we're not exactly sure what it is we're, we're identifying as a problem or what it is we're trying to achieve. So we'll see where this all goes from here. We'll take a pause. We'll come back. A few things to get to before the top of the hour. Much more still to get to here today. We are back with more right after this. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you on the Chorus Radio Network. Our number in Calgary, 403-974-8255 in Edmonton, 780-496-0063. So we'll have some time for your calls coming up after 1130. Uh, Something else happening today which is interesting, the Premier and the Justice Minister are holding a press conference to talk a bit more about the legal challenge uh, that's uh, underway being heard in the Alberta Court of Appeal this week against the Federal Impact Assessment Act, uh, which was uh, also known as, well previously known as, Bill C-69. I mean, once a bill has passed, I guess we typically don't refer to it by its number, but people remember the debate. C-69 and C-48 were two pieces of federal legislation dealing with uh, natural resources that that certainly caught the ire of the Alberta government and many Albertans for that matter. So C-48 was the uh, West Coast tanker ban. C-69 was the much bigger legislation that overhauled the entire process for how projects will be assessed, not just pipelines, not just oil and gas projects, but all kinds of different projects. Which again, and the point's been made many times, why the need for both? If you've got a a new Impact Assessment Act that is meaningful, that is thorough, that takes into consideration the environment, what is the point of the West Coast tanker ban? And it's not even the entire West Coast, obviously, because there is still all kinds of tanker traffic uh, coming and going out of Burnaby and that whole area. And the government has talked in circles on this. Well, we need the West Coast tanker ban because we got to protect this area. Well, if the area is vulnerable, if uh, that area isn't an area where there should be pipelines or tankers or anything else, well, how would that then get through the Impact Assessment Act? If your point is that we now have a process that's going to take all of that into consideration and it's not going to say yes to any project that's going to have some some detrimental impact on the environment, then there's no need for the West Coast tanker ban. So I don't know if that's part of the government's legal argument, but just in a political sense, I think it shows what a sham the, the West Coast tanker ban policy was. Now, in terms of whether the Impact Assessment Act goes too far, That'll be an interesting one. Look, the federal government previously had jurisdiction in this area. So we'll hear from the premier and the justice minister a little bit uh, later on this afternoon as to, you know, what this court challenge is all about, why the province believes that the feds have gone too far this time. I'm not convinced. I I think you can argue maybe that that the new uh, Impact Assessment Act is flawed, but does the federal government go outside its jurisdiction here? It's an interesting question. By the way, and uh, at a piece today um, in in the uh, Calgary Herald and Edmonton Journal, uh, one area where I do think the federal government has gone beyond its jurisdiction, where the Alberta government is, is right to assert its jurisdiction, is on this whole idea of the municipal handgun ban. Now, this isn't something that necessarily needs to go to court, although I wonder if at some point it will. Essentially, what we have is the federal government proposing to tell cities that they can create bylaws to more strictly regulate handguns. I don't know if they can actually ban handguns. The federal government could. But they're going to give municipalities the power if they want. Now, the powers that municipalities have stem from the province via the Municipal Government Act. So the Alberta government's going to just sort of step in and kind of short-circuit this whole farce, by making it clear in the Municipal Government Act that any bylaws that a city passes that have to do with firearms are subject to the approval of the provincial government. In other words, the province is saying, look, stay to your lane, federal government, municipalities are our jurisdiction. Federal government certainly has jurisdiction over firearms. And look, if Ottawa wants to ban handguns, they probably could. Even if Ottawa wanted to say we're going to ban handguns but only in cities of a certain size they could probably do that too but the idea that the province uh, has to make ways so the federal government can create a new power for cities just doesn't make sense and keep in mind it's not as though cities have the power to ban other firearms cities certainly don't have the power to loosen restrictions on firearms the federal government is proposing that they can do this one tiny thing and only that thing. But that's not how it works. So all of that is to say, look, I think there are going to be areas where the federal government does overstep its, its jurisdiction and the, federal, and the provincial government definitely needs to stand up. I, I think that the arguments around C-69 are mostly political in nature. Look, obviously, uh, the province has some jurisdiction, a lot of jurisdiction when it comes to natural resources. So I may be overlooking some, some nuance here. But I think ultimately it comes down to just a lot of Albertans don't like the federal liberal approach on these matters. But that's political, not necessarily constitutional. So, anyway, make note of that. The, uh, the Premier and the Justice Minister are going to be holding a, a press conference this afternoon. Uh, and, of course, we are going to hear uh, later on today from uh, Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Dina Hinshaw, who, by the way, and as you've been hearing, was, was clarifying some of what she said yesterday. Uh, because she made it sound that any move to Phase 2 of the, the relaunch or the reopening wouldn't happen March 1st and would have to happen March 8th. But then she she clarified today that it is still possible that we could see some reopenings next week. Uh, that, that when it comes to hospitalizations, things have been trending in the right direction. Maybe when it comes to cases, we've plateaued a little bit. Some concern that the R value is just slightly above 1 at the moment. Uh, but she clarified today saying that, yeah, if, if we're in a position as of Monday, March 1st, to ease restrictions, that we can do so. That the part about the seven-day heads up That was more so for restaurants going into phase one, that they wanted some advance notice so they could, you know, get staff back and and have food and and that kind of stuff, supplies on hand. Uh, That When it comes to other businesses like fitness centers, for for an example, uh, that if the announcement went out March 1st, then they could probably open March 1st. So. That clarification again. We're not going to get uh, any firm answer today or probably this week, but just some clarification on that point. All right. When we come back, some interesting new research regarding dreams and sleep. We got some open line time coming up. It's Rob Breckenridge with you on the Chorus Radio Network. All right here we go. Welcome to this hour on the Chorus Radio Network. Rob Breckenridge with you here today and for the next couple of weeks. Plus we'll some time for your phone calls coming up later in this hour. A few of the stories we're watching, including this uh, meeting today, a virtual meeting happening between Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and U.S. President Joe Biden, so we'll bring you the latest on that. Much more still to get to. Off the top of this hour, though, I want to take a look at a fascinating new study that kind of cuts to some pretty fundamental questions about sleep, dreams specifically, but even just sleep itself, right? We tend to think of you're either awake or you're asleep, right? There's no in-between, but, but is there? Is it possible to be asleep but to be aware of what's going on around you. Is it possible to be asleep and have a conversation with somebody? Now, that might be overstating it a little bit here, but uh, some interesting new research out of the U.S. finds that real-time dialogue with a dreaming person is possible. And some of it almost calls to mind the, the movie Inception, the idea of kind of hacking into someone's dream. But maybe you've had it happen before. I know I've had uh, plenty of times where uh you know, a, a song is playing, an alarm's going off. Maybe your clock radio is playing a song, and the, the song kind of seeps its way into your dream. So you're perceiving it, but it's manifesting itself somehow in your dream. And that, that's kind of similar to what was found here. This study published in the journal Current Biology. Uh, joining us to talk more about the research is uh, one of the authors uh, of this study, uh, Ken Powler, a professor of psychology at Northwestern University and joins us on the line here this morning. Professor Powell, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
7: Thanks. Uh, glad to talk.
2: So let, let's uh, establish the concept, first of all, of, of lucid dreaming. And, and that's the the state, I guess, that this study focuses on, the, the state that we're referring to. What, what do we mean when we speak of lucid dreaming?
8: Well, lucid dreaming is defined as having a dream and knowing at that moment that it's a dream. Because most of our dreams, we think, we're awake and we're experiencing normal circumstances, no matter how bizarre it is. But in a lucid dream, you understand that you're dreaming.
2: Okay, so I mean, that, that seems like a clear difference. But it, I mean, just the, the fact that, that that would exist as a concept in the first place, what what does it tell us about our, our brains and uh, our perception of, of being asleep versus being awake? How can we be aware that we are dreaming?
8: Well, I, I think it, it's, it gets to the bizarreness of dreams in the first place. So one of the big questions is why do we dream anyway? What's the point of doing that? And when we're dreaming, we're in essentially inventing everything we experience, right? It's all manufactured based on the memories we have and putting them together in new and totally different ways and then experiencing that. And we seem to not be entirely logical while we're, while we're having a dream because when you're awake, if something really bizarre happens, you probably take notice of that. And we seem to just be nonchalant and go right on with a dream when they're bizarre. <laughs> Do you, have you had that experience? The, yes. <laughs> the, the, you, you don't jump to the conclusion that something bizarre just happened. I must be dreaming. That happens once in a while, and, and it happens more in children. It happens sometimes for people that have nightmares a lot. Uh, it doesn't necessarily happen to a lot of us. Most people don't have this, but uh, maybe about half of the people that have been surveyed have had a lucid dream at least one time in their
4: life.
2: Well, I, I've had all those dreams where, you know, something bad has happened or is happening, and then it sort of occurs to me in the dream that, wait a sec, maybe I'm, I'm dreaming. So I, I've certainly had that, I, I think, it is, as weird as it is. But there, there's definitely a difference between the two, because some, you know, seem very real, and it's not until you wake up that it takes a second for that to to process that, okay, wait, that didn't happen. That was just a dream.
8: And lucid dreamers, once they notice it's a lucid dream, they like to stay in it rather than just wake (laughs) up because they can experience things. They can, in fact, try to direct the dream to go in particular ways so they can have a, a degree of control over what happens in the dream.
9: All
2: right, so that brings us to this study, and the, the idea then that there's, there's maybe more awareness going on here when it comes to those who are in a lucid dream state, that there's perhaps ways of communicating with them. So, so how do you go about doing that?
8: Maybe I should back up a little bit to just say why we're doing this sort of thing. So mm-hmm. we want to understand more about sleep and dream dreaming and how it works and why it's relevant to our waking lives, because we think there are various benefits of sleep. You know, sleep isn't at a time when your brain is just turned off. Your brain is quite busy, and we, we need to ask, well, what is, it, what is the brain doing? What is all that brain activity during sleep? And we think that it actually has a positive impact on our memory functions, on our problem solving, creativity, and even our psychological well-being. So to make better use of those benefits, we want to understand what's going on. And so in these studies, we've been trying to understand what's happening in dreaming. And... So one of the difficulties of studying dreaming is that you pretty much learn about them when people wake up, and they tell you, oh, I just had a dream, and they can tell you about their dream, but now some time has passed, they, may, they might forget a lot of it, they might not remember it correctly, uh, and they're in a totally different state, the waking state, when they recall the dream. So we can't totally trust those dream reports as being accurate. So we want to go back and see, can we find out about a dream at the moment, it's happening from people, and that was our goal in these these experiments.
2: Right. so and it's 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 a big question, but I mean, I would imagine it's it's tricky to do. So how did you design this? How did you go about uh, answering those questions?
8: Yeah, well, we, we we tried to take advantage of things that had been known from prior work because of course, all these new findings it's always sort of built on prior things. And we knew that people in a lucid dream can signal out of a lucid dream their bodies are paralyzed during REM sleep, so they can't talk, they can't move much, but they can move their eyes. And so if you're in a dream and you look around in your, whatever environment you're imagining in your dream, your actual eyes are also moving. So this, was, this has been known for a few decades, that if you, if you move your eyes in a particular way, like if we, we use a signal, look to the left all the way, the, to the right, to the left, and to the right, and if they make that signal, we can monitor it from the outside. We could be looking with a camera at the eyes, but it's easier. We just put uh, electri- electrodes on the face and we can record the eyes moving and therefore we can see those signals. So that's half of the communication part that people in a dream can signal to an experimenter to a person outside looking at the recordings. And then the, the other end of it is we had to get information in. And as you mentioned... Uh, sometimes a sound in your world can be incorporated into your dream. And sort of, you know, you, you mentioned you might hear a song on the radio and maybe that influences the dream somehow, usually kind of indirectly. So it might make your dream go in a different way, but but you you won't necessarily hear it accurately. Like if you hear some water dropping, you, you won't necessarily hear water dropping in your dream, but you might dream about some activity in water. Say, And so we wanted to put those things together and, find out, if could we communicate accurately to people using words, but, but softly so we don't wake them up, and then if they're actually understanding what they're saying, could they answer back? And in that sense, we could ask them about their dreams and have them tell us about what they're dreaming at the moment. But we wanted to start with questions where we knew what the correct answer was, because if we knew the correct answer, we could make a judgment about whether we think they're accurately hearing the question and able to produce the correct answer. So we we used uh, a number of questions. Some of them were math problems, just simple problems. So what's eight minus six, we would ask. And if the dreamer can hear the question and actually think carefully enough to compute the answer and then signal the answer out with their eyes, then we would know that we were communicating successfully. And that's what happened. I can mention that happened here in my laboratory Uh, outside Chicago, and also in three other labs in France, Germany, and the Netherlands. So we teamed up together these four different groups uh, in this publication last week.
2: Yeah. And just an example of of how fascinating it is, it says one dreamer reported those math problems that were coming out of a car radio. So he was sort of dreaming that he was in a vehicle, he was hearing the questions, but it was manifesting itself in, in the dream then.
8: Yes, people, people heard the, the sounds in, in different ways. Sometimes it was coming just out of nowhere or some, from something in their environment. Um, and one, one of the students that we tested, she ended up dreaming that she was in her math class, which seems <laughs> somehow related to, you know, she knew, she knew we were going to ask math questions when she was sleeping. She didn't know which ones, but she ended up dreaming about being in a math class.
2: And so the, the and right answer, enough for
8: her to answer the questions.
2: And some of them did. Now, it wasn't the majority. I think it was maybe one-fifth at the time, or, or maybe just under. But the fact that, yeah, that people often, were able to often answer... they
8: didn't seem to hear. Okay. So the questions, the questions we asked didn't always get in, and we don't know why for sure, but we think perhaps people are preoccupied with their dream, and whatever interesting yeah. thing is happening there. <laughs> so they may not always hear the question. And in fact, we usually didn't get an answer, but we kept trying. And repeatedly, we did get answers, so we, we believe that it can happen, and we have to work a little harder to figure out, well, what makes it work sometimes and not other times? But it, it worked repeatedly, and they seldom gave us the wrong answers. So that was one of the questions we had. We thought, perhaps they'll hear our voice, but maybe it'll come out very distorted, and instead of eight minus six, they might hear banana, you know, walks <laughs> over gravel or something. You know, They could hear anything. <laughs> Uh, if they weren't, uh, you know, getting the information correctly, but they seem to usually get it correct, and therefore be able to answer the question often correctly.
2: So the implication our of this. A yeah. group in
8: Paris did a set of other questions. So they asked some questions that were yes no questions, like, okay. did you do you like to watch football? Or, you know, do you like chocolate? They asked these questions and then got yes no answers, and in in their case the the person answering was able to move their facial muscles, which is not so easy to do because, of course, the paralysis that happens during REM sleep. But if you smile in your dream, your body doesn't necessarily smile, but there's a little muscle twitch in the facial muscles, Mm -hmm. and that's what they measured electrically to see this muscle twitch and get the yes or no answers to their questions.
2: So the idea of hacking people's dreams, I mean, the the Inception stuff does still seem a a little out there, but I would think that there are all kinds of very positive implications from this. What, What do you see as, you know, the takeaways from this, or at least, you know, where the research goes from here?
8: Yeah, there's sort of two categories. So one is to help us with future research. So we want to find out more about dreaming. And so there's a lot of experiments we can now do where we're not just relying on the dream report when they wake up, but also getting information during the dream. And adding to that, our recordings of the electrical activity of the brain that are made so we can try to interpret, well, what's happening in the brain when this dream is going on and when a person answers our questions about what is is specifically happening in their dreams. So that's one category of things that, that allow us to try to understand dreams. And as I mentioned before, figure out how they might be relevant to memory function, Or creativity or you know various questions about how sleep is interesting and there's so another category quite separate is can this method be used for people to help them with their goals and so communicating during a dream I suppose you could rig it up so you could try to uh, curate your own dreams so they go Mm -hmm. the way you want them to go because you might want to have a lucid dream For a particular reason, say you have some problem you're working on in your life and you might want to try to solve it a little bit more creatively like you might be able to do in your dream and sort of work on this problem. And so you can have a lucid dream and then forget what your goal was. So this, this method could be used to remind you of what your particular goal is and also to help you get in the lucid dream in the first place because that's actually quite challenging just to have a dream and then suddenly realize oh, actually, I'm not awake right now. I'm sleeping. And so I can go ahead with the goals I had set for myself earlier. So both of those things could be promoted with these methods where we're presenting words to people while they're sleeping. It could be in your own voice. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it has to be soft enough because you don't want it to wake you up. So it has to be at the right time of sleep, which in this case was REM sleep, and at the right volume so that it gets in but doesn't wake you completely up
2: because that's not the point. It's fascinating indeed. Uh, Professor Power. we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate it.
8: Happy to talk to you, Rob.
2: All right, take care. That's uh, Ken Power. He's a cognitive neuroscientist. He's a a professor of psychology at Northwestern University, one of the authors of this study. Uh, So yeah, that idea of a blank slate where you can have a dream, you know you're dreaming, you can shape it a certain way, you know, that, that would hold a lot of promise. I mean, there probably are ways that that can be abused, which is, is worth taking into consideration. But some really interesting findings here. Tell you what we got to do here. We'll take a quick break. We got some open line time coming up in this hour. Much more to get to. We're back with more right after this. All right, Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on the Chorus Radio Network just a minute or so before the bottom of the hour. Uh, we can open up the phone lines uh, coming up after 1130. Uh, anything uh, on your mind here this morning? Certainly, we talked a lot earlier about uh, the vote yesterday in the House of Commons, uh, the motion passing, recognizing a genocide occurring in China, what's being done to the uh, Uyghur uh, Muslim population. Of course, the prime minister and cabinet ministers abstained from the vote. Now, most weren't there. Uh, Mark Garneau, the foreign affairs minister, was. So we had the the optics of the foreign affairs minister abstaining on the vote, Nobody voted against the motion, so this did have support from all parties, including from liberal MPs, by the way. But I think the question then becomes, well, what do we do now? What's the next step? It's not enough to just, you know, wag a finger and say, shame on you, China, for what you're doing. I mean, what's the follow-through here? So I think there's that question, but it also speaks to the bigger issue, doesn't it, of, you know, this, this government's entire approach towards China. It just seems largely defined by inaction. You know, they're they're afraid to rock the boat, afraid to anger the Chinese, afraid to put the two Michaels in, in danger. But you, you can't ignore these issues either. So maybe we'll uh, kind of hide behind the Americans on this one. We'll see how much uh, discussion on China there is in this conversation today, this virtual meeting between Justin Trudeau and U.S. President Joe Biden and whatever else might come out of that. You know, and there's the question, well, OK, so uh, Justin Trudeau and Joe Biden are on good terms, But what does that actually mean to us, right? I mean, Reagan and Mulroney were great buddies, but it was good for the Canada-U.S. relationship. We got the free trade agreement. There was a lot of cooperation on defense issues that that Canada mattered. Mulroney had Reagan's ear. So are we going to see any results from from, uh, this prime minister and this president? So we'll come back with your calls. Much more still to come. We're back after this. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge uh, in here on the Chorus Radio Network. I've uh, got some time for your calls here. You want to jump in. In Calgary, it's 403-974-8255. In Edmonton, 780-496-0063. Uh, just out a text here. We, we mentioned earlier the uh, federal gun bill and the uh, province's plans to kind of intercede on that. Uh, texter says, Rob, I don't the liberals even care if that gun bill passes. They just wanted the headlines and talking heads to make it seem like they're doing something. It goes on to say the mental gymnastics a person has to go through after legally owned firearms, to go after legally owned firearms, and reducing punishments and ignoring the real criminals is mind-boggling. Yeah, there's a lot to that. A, I think, yes, it's unlikely that this gun bill is going to pass in this session of the, the uh, parliament, given how much time is left. So I think it is more about making it seem as though they're doing something. It's no coincidence, right, that you had this gun bill come off the heels of that uh, announcement about public transit funding. Fifteen billion dollars for public transit. Most of it's not going to come until the year 2026. But both of these initiatives really aimed at, at voters in big cities, and with the likelihood of an election sometime this year, it's, it's certainly no coincidence. Now, again, and something else that this texture mentions that's interesting, the gun bill has provisions in it that would increase the penalties for gun smuggling. So that's actually a positive. But there was a separate piece of legislation that the liberals introduced, which, again, who knows if that'll pass in time. Uh, But it's meant as kind of a a criminal reform sort of bill. And it's actually going to remove a lot of the mandatory minimums that exist on other crimes, including some gun crimes. So we've got two separate pieces of legislation that do two different things. On the one hand, the liberals want to increase the penalty for certain gun crimes. On the other hand, they want to reduce the penalty for certain gun crimes. Fine, fair enough. I mean, if you want to make an argument one way or the other, then go ahead and do so. And there were those who say, you know, we think our whole approach to criminal justice and just throwing tough penalties at criminals, that's not the way to go, etc. You you can make that argument, at least it's consistent. I don't know if a lot of folks would would buy into that, but it's a consistent argument. And on on the other hand, if you want to say, hey, we got to get tough on criminals, put them in jail longer, etc. Again, that's a consistent position. But the liberals are trying to do both here. And that certainly does require a lot of mental gymnastics. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so you want to jump in on that something else I wanted to mention as well because we talked a little bit yesterday about uh, the rallies that occurred over the weekend, and I guess it 's worth noting that there were really essentially a couple of different rallies, so there were supporters of this uh, this pastor from from Grace Life Church, who was at the remand Center because he 's uh, refused to follow these injunctions regarding to in person regarding in person church services so he 's at the remand Center. Uh, Some of his supporters held a rally outside of the Remand Center, but there was also a separate rally that was at the Alberta Legislature, Uh, some group calling itself Walk for Freedom Alberta. Now, it's that rally where there were the the tiki torches that were being carried, which certainly seemed to have echoes of Charlottesville. There were some other groups that were a part of that. And so that's the the rally that's received a lot of attention. In fact, the premier put out a statement yesterday Regarding this, because uh, there there had been some criticism that the province had nothing to say about all of that. Uh, Lila uh, here, uh, one of the cabinet ministers, was at an announcement yesterday. She was asked about it, and I think she wasn't really sure how to respond since the premier hadn't really said anything. So the premier did put out a statement late yesterday, and I wanted to read it to you and, and get your sense whether you feel this needs to be said, whether he's striking the right balance here. He says, Albertans value the constitutionally protected freedoms of speech and assembly. This weekend, protesters gathered at the Alberta legislature to oppose our government's public health measures that are in place to protect the vulnerable and our hospitals from the COVID-19 pandemic. I understand that publicity for this event incorporated an image taken from the notorious 2017 Charlottesville Torch Rally, which was an explicitly white supremacist event. Prominent racists promoted Saturday's protests at the legislature, and individuals attended the event from known hate groups like Soldiers of Odin and Urban Infidels. I condemn these voices of bigotry in the strongest possible terms. Albertans believe in the dignity of every human being and have no time for these voices of division and hate or the symbols that they represent. Like any large protest, there was likely a range of perspectives and motivations amongst those who attended. There was no doubt that some came just to register their opposition to public health measures, which is their democratic right. But these people also have a responsibility to disassociate themselves from the extremists who peddle hatred and division who played a role in this event. So, again, you know, and it is often the case these days with the premier, it's tough for him to find that, that Goldilocks zone where you know some who feel that this was too little too late others feeling like maybe this is a, an overreaction of why did he need to say anything ultimately i i think he he did need to say something i i do think that was the right thing to say now that was posted at what five thirty yesterday afternoon sure he could have done it eight hours earlier but i think the point is that that he said what needed to be said i do think that there are groups who are using the debate around the pandemic and lockdown measures and restrictions, as kind of an excuse for advancing other agendas. I I do think that's a part of it. You know, like I said, I think there's a distinction to be made between some of these groups or with the legislature and and those who are at uh, the Remand Center. So there's a reasonable conversation to be had about what kind of restrictions need to be in place in Alberta? What should be the focus of our pandemic response? Does the Alberta government have it right at the moment? Are we going too slow or are we going too fast? Reasonable people can disagree over these things. But to uh, evoke the Charlottesville rally, to make a point of having those reminders of that in, in certain groups with different agendas, that, that's going beyond, I think, any reasonable conversation about uh, public health measures. So yes, I think it's important for the Premier to point out that Albertans have and value constitutionally protected freedom of speech and assembly. I think it's also important for our leaders to condemn that kind of bigotry and to draw a distinction between the two. It's not bigoted to have a position, even a contrarian position, on public health measures. And so a protest that's designed to say, hey, we think the province needs to ease measures or even a protest to say the province isn't doing enough. That, that's entirely legitimate. So anyway, you want to react to uh, what the premier had to say or, or for that matter, just, you know, where we're at in Alberta. We've had some easing of restrictions, but we've got a long way to go still. Some suggestion today from Dr. Dina Hinchon, clarifying some of her remarks yesterday, uh, that we could still have some easing of restrictions as of this coming Monday, March the 1st. No decision has been made yet, but she certainly seemed to imply that even if they made a decision, that we'd have to wait another week to give everybody seven days uh, heads up. But clarifying that today, saying that, no, if we're in a position to ease restriction, we'll probably be able to do that on March 1st so that would be the 3 weeks leeway from february 8th the first phase of the easing of restrictions to potentially the second phase coming up on uh, march 1st so obviously this this whole situation with this grace life church and you now there's another church in calgary i believe that that's kind of doing the same thing in solidarity i think that that's raised some of the questions uh, around The current state of public health restrictions, whether we need to, if we're going to have restrictions, enforce them more strictly. And then what happens if we have to go backward? Because I think for some, and this church is is, uh, emblematic of that, some are just done. That that's it. We've had enough. We're maxed out. We're not interested in following all of this anymore. So that's potentially problematic, I think, for the government. Because I do think they're, they're trying to be balanced in their approach. They don't always get it right. And I think maybe you could fault them both ways. If you look at uh, the, this pandemic in its totality, times when they've been too cautious, maybe times when they've rushed ahead more than they should. It's really, really tricky to get this kind of thing right, and you're going to get criticized on both sides. That comes with the territory, mind you. You want to be in government. You want to be the, the boss. Be prepared to, to take ownership and, and defend your decisions. So we got some of that to discuss, got a few other things I want to get to, but uh, we can open the phone lines up here again in Calgary 403-974-8255. If you're in Edmonton, you can reach us 780-496-0063. Maybe what we'll do, we'll take our, our break here and we'll get that out of the way. We'll come back, uh, an opportunity for you to jump in. Like I said, a few other things uh, we can get to here as well. My name is Rob Breckenridge. You're listening to The Chorus Radio Network. All right, welcome back. So we're winding down this hour, an opportunity uh, for you to jump in. Weigh in on uh, some of what we discussed here today or maybe something else you want to uh, get off your chest. But let's go to the phones without any further ado, and we'll start here with David. David, good morning. Welcome to the
7: program. Hey, good morning. How are you today?
2: Hey, David, pretty good.
7: Yeah, so um, I I keep hearing these things in the news about uh, people called in those churches and they're supposed to be racist and stuff like that. And um, I, don't, I don't see racism in there. I, I just don't understand. I didn't see anybody putting their hands up and and saying white power or anything like that i think they were just demonstrating i, I just so i just don't get it what they see well hang on where well, are we because there
2: were there were sort of two different events right there was the group that was at the remand center to show support for the pastor and there was the the other event at the legislature and that's what the premier was was talking about
7: yes i understand that but where where i i, I know both of them and i actually support both of the uh, demonstrations like it's just i i don't see where uh, bringing torches is supposed to be racist, or was anybody hearing anybody saying white power or or down with minorities or anything like that? I I, I don't see any videos saying that. Like, mm-hmm. if you can show me that, then I can say, okay, well, they, there we go. There's some bad apples in there, but uh, you know, I'm an I'm a immigrant myself, and I I I I watch a lot of those videos actually, and I don't I don't remember seeing any of those. Ladies or gentlemen there, and uh, putting their hands up like like Nazis or whatever, like in the United States, a good example in the United States that uh, they were doing that. they had their cloaks and they had their 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 collars, and they were you know they were they were screaming white power I, 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 don't, I didn't see that at all, so uh, how how can some churches turn out to be a bunch of racists i'm I, right. I I i do not see it yeah.
2: Yeah, and I get what you're saying, David. I appreciate the phone call. And yeah, again, and I, I don't think the premier is linking these churches to these groups. Again, back to what the premier said in his statement. Uh, he said that there were some groups, known hate groups, he says, like Soldiers of Odin and Urban Infidels, who were involved in promoting that event at the legislature. The point about the torches, and obviously torches aren't inherently racist items, or I guess we could fault the stores for selling them. He says, I understand that publicity for this event incorporated an image apparently taken from the notorious 2017 Charlottesville Torch Rally. So that's where there would be a connection. I'm not sure why anyone would want to invoke that. But if you're posting images from that and then encouraging people to bring torches, it certainly sounds like you're trying to somehow draw inspiration from that or recreate that, I guess. But again, look, I wasn't at the rally so I don't know if anybody was saying racist things or wearing racist, uh, slogans on, on their shirts or anything like that. So yeah, if someone was there, they could, they could speak more directly to that. Let's get back to the phones though. This is Don. Don, welcome to the program.
10: Hi Rob. Um, I think that when you're talking about lucid dreaming, uh, if you All actually ahead. get into it, it's, it's quite, uh, it's quite amazing. You'd never get, you never want to play a video game again, but, uh, the other thing I wanted to comment on is uh, when I was younger, I had a dream that uh, China came into what we know as Canada today. And then I found out as I got older, it's also the prediction is in the book of Revelation it talks about an army of 200 million. There wasn't 200 million people on the planet when the prediction was made. But um, I think we've got to be really careful what we're doing with China. I think we're playing a really dangerous game. If United States for whatever reason is not around to protect us, or the government switches to the government that's in power right now, uh, Joe was talking about having China run the United States electrical uh, system across the grid a few weeks ago. Um, anyway, goodness. it's just it's it's it's, uh, it's it's kind of an interesting times that we're going into. But um, and my last comment is the the guy that's in prison. I sent a text in about it, but uh, maybe he can help save some uh, people and turn their lives around while he's in there and work for, do the work that he may be required to do.
2: Yeah. Well, again, I mean, the remand center is not a prison, so nobody in there has been convicted of a crime. (laughs) Uh, so it's important to point that out. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, look, he's he's obviously decided he needs to make a point of this for whatever reason. I, I would think that there are more productive ways of, of dealing with this situation. That That's the path he's chosen to go down. Obviously, he's he's got some supporters. So Anyway, yeah, Don, appreciate the phone call. Mm-hmm. All right. So I've still got a bit of time here again. 403-974-8255. It's a number in Calgary, 7804960063, if you're in Edmonton. Uh, another text here says, uh, Rob, I feel the big issue with the capacity issue with COVID 19 is that some places are supposed to follow it to a T, and then the bigger chain stores don't really follow the limits. There have been a lot of times I go into a grocery store and it's just packed. The bulk of the stores like that too. Yeah, it, it, it's a fair question. I mean, whether it's grocery stores or malls or the big department stores. Are they following the rules? Are, are they limiting the number of people who can be in the store at any time? I, I did have to go to a store recently uh, to get my son's uh, skate sharpened, because fortunately now kids are able to get back on the ice and, and do that. But they were very diligent in counting the number of people that were in the store, and I was told, you just got to wait because we're at our capacity right now. So I think some stores are trying to do it; others probably aren't. And so it does create that, that perception of a double standard, right? Anyway, let's get back to the phones. Uh, this is Rick. Rick, welcome to the program.
4: Hey, Rob, you've got a great show. I appreciate that. But you want to talk about the greatest threat to Canada is a the federal government's ideology. So, you know, and who what's are it? we? Well, who are we? Who are we as a people? I mean, you know... There, there are things out there where they talk about, you know, our prime minister really is supporting China. You know, in the, in the House of Commons, am I using the right words there? Where he was absent in, in his voting on. Uh, right, he wasn't the there for issue. the vote
2: yesterday. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, that's dangerous stuff. I mean, that's dangerous to uh, Western civilization. I mean, that's irresponsible, really, isn't it? I mean, I'd like to hear what your voters say, but I mean, listen, right. uh, you know, there's a big difference between, between supporting a, a communist. Re- I mean, m- a lot of us, not everyone, but a lot of us believe that China is an issue. I mean, a big issue. And here we've got a, a prime minister and, and uh, his, his cabinet, not even his cabinet, but just himself, uh, not there to vote on, on genocide. And come on, I mean, what's going on? I, can I tell you this, Rob? is I, mm-hmm. I see a, a reawakening of conservatism, and uh, and, I, and I see that because it's going to be necessary in order to stop, um, you know, this this thought process so we can participate in. This is dangerous. Your, your earlier neck earlier caller. This is dangerous stuff. I mean, we're not we're not fooling around. Here. But where Canada has been a sellout. You know, through this administration, the federal administration, and of course he's, uh, we talk about censorship and how it affects municipalities right here in the city of Edmonton. I can tell you now, I, I feel a, a reawakening of uh, of conservatism and only because if we don't, uh, we're continuing along, uh, you know, this thought process that so we can allow, we can be part of. I mean, Justin has really is really showing that he's wanting to be part of that. Anyway, I've said enough. you got a great right. show. Let's see. Uh, yeah,
2: Rick, appreciate the phone call. Let's uh, get a couple more in here, as, uh, if time allows. This is Nancy. Nancy, go ahead.
4: Yeah, I'm
11: right here. How are you? Hi, Nancy. Good. Good. Um, I was at both rallies. I was at the remand. I'd say there was about 500 people showed up, mm-hmm. and it was awesome to see the response of people to someone being held without really a cause. Um, I'm wondering how we can fill a plane, but we can only go 15% capacity in a church. That doesn't make sense to, I'm pretty sure, the average person. And yeah. then after that, I moved on to the legislative grounds, and mm-hmm. I'd say there was probably a 1,000 of us there. And I got there just after the gentleman was arrested who we should note was released and there was no charges held against him. Like, he even had no idea why he was being arrested. And when asking the arresting officer why he was arrested, he had no answer. So it was just kind of foolishness and uh, inflammatory. And when I was at the rally, I actually found it super positive. Like, it was amazing. Um, people there were very happy to be there and the whole thing was surrounding let's bust the country open and get our freedom granted back Uh, there was nothing racist at all like zip and if you read the signs as you go through all the signs were like end the lockdown freedom for the people we don't need a vaccine we have healthy bodies like things like that every single sign i would love to see you guys find a sign that said white supremacy, down with the black. Right, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like claiming there was.
2: was. Well, I, okay, yeah, yeah, that's fair. Well, I wasn't I, claiming that, nor was the premier claiming that.
11: Well, a lot of Notley claimed it, and uh, actually I spoke to a lot of the police officers there, too, and they actually were very supportive of our cause. I had a couple of them even walk me to my car, and we had a really great chat on the way there. And I'm also a waitress, and I talked to... Uh, people that come in, and a lot of people are so done with all of this. They just don't know how to end it. I also work as a health care aide, so I'm working with the elderly, and they feel so scared and so tied up and so sad. Like, I can tell you a really horrifying story i was taking care well, of that's
2: Nancy, United sorry States. i'm gonna I, I i'll jump in i don't want to have to cut you off halfway through your story because i'm right out of time but i appreciate the phone call we gotta leave it there for this hour for edmonton audience we'll hand it over to oilers now for our calgary audience we'll be back with more right after this all right, welcome back. Rob Brickenridge uh, sitting in here today in 770 CHQR. Angela Cocod is uh, also sitting in today. In fact, she's sitting in for me today, uh, coming up at uh, 1230 this afternoon. Uh, Ange, how you doing?
9: Hey, good. Uh, actually, you just caught me um, sanitizing everything in the studio. You know we have to do this. You don't have to deal oh, with this the because... The studio, uh, I remember it, The that, studio, please. yes. Yeah. Oh, lots has changed. When you come back, eventually, you'll see a huge plexiglass wall. You'll ensure that every time you walk in here, you sanitize the keyboard, the mouse. The ch- it's amazing the the high I touch did points. did that a lot before the pandemic, yeah. anyway. <laughs> oh right, okay. So yeah. it'll be no big deal for you. Uh, yeah, I'm doing well. I am like everyone else, trying to find some positives as we continue to wait for our economy to reopen. I I'm. After I heard Dr. Hinshaw yesterday say that, okay, March 1st was the date that a lot of people, businesses, were saying, are we heading into the next phase of reopening the economy? And uh, she, along with Premier Kenny, they've all kind of done this hinting that there's no guarantee that on March 1st, we will move to that next phase. And that's right. that's got a lot of people once again thinking, oh my gosh, what's happening? You know, the COVID fatigue and everything else. Well then, and you saw it too, and I want to share it with my listeners uh, about the tweet that Dr. Hinshaw put out today. And I'm saying this is positive because she's now saying that on March 1st, there's a good possibility that on that day, we will actually... Uh, reopen the economy. We won't give the the week notice that come uh, March 8th, we'll be reopening the economy. So I'm saying that's positive. Let's hope as we read between the lines that that's a a good sign. Uh, A Procurement minister, Anand, saying that by the end of this week, what, 643,000 doses of Pfizer and Moderna are going to be coming out. Uh, You know, so we seem to be on track. And what was the other one? Oh, oh, Tam, Uh, Dr. Tam saying she's hoping to see uh, a real lifting of the most severe restrictions uh, by, well, for sure September, but even in the springtime. So, Rob, I'm hanging on to those things because (laughs) I think a lot of people are just saying, oh, wow, we are tired of the negative news. Let's find some positives. So uh, that's what I'm going to talk about. Whether or not our listeners will share in my positivity is another thing.
2: We shall see. All right, Angela. <laughs> appreciate that. Uh, Angela Koka coming up this afternoon at 1230 to 330 here uh, today. Filling in for me is uh, filling in for, well, I don't know for whom, but uh, I'll be filling in this week and, and next week, and then we'll see what happens after that. So i let you know we we will hear again from Dr. Hinshaw 330 today. And, and I think part of why, you know, there was a need to clarify yesterday, and she was asked the question by one of the reporters yesterday that, well, if, if things are going to be eased up again, how much you know heads up are you going to give businesses? And, I, and her answer was in reference to the seven days. And then she clarified today, she said, well, you know, that, that seven-day heads up was really more aimed at restaurants initially back on, on February 8th. So we probably won't need to do that this time around. So if restrictions are going to be eased on March 1st, they can probably just be eased on March 1st. There wouldn't be a, a need for a one-week heads up. Because I think, you know, fitness centers are probably more or less ready to go and, and other businesses too. So there's there's the clarification there. And yeah, I mean, look, I think the premier is well aware that there's a real desire uh, in, in the population to at least be moving in the right direction. I, I don't think people expect that, that all restrictions are going to be lifted right now. I don't know that it would be realistic to lift all restrictions now, but hopefully we can keep moving in the right direction. I do think vaccines, you know, And I, again, I find it a little strange that at anti lockdown protests, they're also protesting against vaccines. Like, that's our way out of this, folks. You don't like the restrictions. You don't like the vaccines. Well, I don't know. To me, it's kind of pick one. And and, and I think those are going to make a big difference. Already, we're starting to see that in, in terms of, uh, you know, numbers coming down in, in long-term care. And again, look—if we can start to reduce hospitalizations by protecting more vulnerable more vulnerable groups, that's going to give the the province a lot of leeway when it comes to easing restrictions. So that's the direction I think we need to go, and there's there's a lot of payoff from vaccines. So just and and kind of to what uh, Angela alluded to, if we could get to, uh, I got some audio clips here, Patrick, if we could. Uh, Uh, get to those here. I just want to play a little bit of what uh, Anita Anand said today about uh, vaccines arriving this week uh, and also Dr. Tam's uh, comments regarding uh, restrictions. So, first of all, anyway, let me play this. clip number one. uh, Public Services and Procurement Minister Anita Anand says this week we are going to receive a total of 643,000 doses of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Biggest shipment to date. Those numbers are going to keep going up. Here's what she had to say. This
12: week, we are receiving a total of 643,000 doses of Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, the largest shipment to date and the majority of which have already been delivered. By the end of this week, a total of 2.5 million doses will have been delivered and another 3.5 million are arriving in the month of March. Despite a temporary disruption to supply chains, Canada will receive 6 million doses of vaccine prior to the end of March as planned. A total of 29 million cumulative doses will be delivered before the end of June and 84 million prior to the end of September. These figures include only the two currently approved vaccines.
2: So there's the potential that, that we could see that the Johnson & Johnson or AstraZeneca vaccines approved as well. And that might, might change the game a little bit in addition to what's coming. So we'll see. Again, you know, government assurances are just that. And I think Canadians are reasonably in a position where, you know, we'll, we'll believe it when we see it. So vaccine shipments are going to increase. Great. Obviously, it doesn't make up for the stumbles we've had over the last couple of months here. and watching other countries pull well ahead of us. But that's that's promising. There's also the question, too, by the way, and we're going to discuss it on the program tomorrow, does it make sense to to maybe do similar to what the UK is doing and space out the second dose a little bit? So if you look, say, from, from June to, to September, if we're going to have 12 million uh, vaccines in Canada by June, should we vaccinate 12 million people? In other words, get everybody we can a first dose, extend it to 12 weeks and then hopefully at the end of those 12 weeks we'll have enough to give everybody the second dose so that's going to be an interesting question but at least the good news is we're in a position where we can sort of have that conversation and then again that goes with the conversation of let's let's keep going on on the easing of restrictions and i think there's got to be that that payoff there's got to be that light at the end of the tunnel and I think when health officials talk about, well, we're not sure if we're going to be able to ease restrictions, we got to wait and see and I, I don't think that's helpful. I think you got to give people hope first of all. I think we got to be realistic about the really good news that we're already seeing in countries like Israel when it comes to to the benefits of of these vaccines and it's if it's going to encourage more people to get vaccines, then then that's a positive too. So let's talk about that upside. Let's talk about the payoff. So on, on that point, here's uh, clip number two. This is uh, Canada's uh, chief public health officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, addressing that today.
13: We're very encouraged by some of the vaccine effectiveness data as you've seen coming out of the United Kingdom. And um, I think some of the basis upon which uh, some of those comments were made uh, but there were caveats to those comments, too, um, uh, from from the United Kingdom. Um, I do think vaccines play an absolutely key uh, role in our return to, um, you know, clo- closer to what the life that we have known. And I think as many people as possible getting vaccinated means that resurgence then becomes less likely. Um, and it will it, even before September. I think depending on a number of factors such as vaccine uptake, ongoing uh, monitoring of the variants and how vaccine coverage um, is provided uh, as the uh, the virus could always change over time, of course. But I think um, we will see the ability to shift some of those public health measures as the months go by. Um, and September is a target, of course, for as many Canadians as uh, who wants a vaccine getting vaccinated. Um, but I do think that uh, the vaccine will play a critical role in easing uh, of public health measures. The key is to get the vaccine levels, vaccination levels high so that we reduce the chances of those, uh, you know, massive upswings in um, in 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 resurgence Um in order to uh, keep society going. So that is absolutely the goal. But I think, um, you know, you, you can't put an absolute date on one of these things, but uh, having had uh, everybody getting the vaccine, uh, that is a massive step towards uh, returning to uh, a more normal uh, life. While well, I would say keeping up with your personal, you know, protective measures, um, the idea is not to, to reduce the need to have the more restrictive um, public health measures in the community. Uh, but, uh, you know, I remain really very hopeful, but we have to go with the data as we, as, as the science evolves as well.
2: Okay. There's uh, the answer from Dr. Tam. We've got to take a break here. We'll come back. We can close out with uh, more time for your calls here. four zero three 403 403-974-8255. We're back with more right after this. Well, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge sitting in uh, here today, this week, next week. Got some time for your calls here as we uh, wind things down this afternoon. Again, 403-974-TALK is our number. This is Peter. Peter, good afternoon.
14: Well, well I'm thinking, you know, if, if vaccines are the answer, uh, we've got six companies in Canada that are capable of making it, and uh, and we've got a, probably a million square feet in Calgary that is of warehouse space that could be converted into factories. And we got a federal government that's just dragging its feet, and 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 the fact that they're just dragging their feet is almost criminal.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah Peter, appreciate the phone call. I mean, yeah, look, I, I think some opportunities were missed last year, clearly, and and I, I think you make an argument the government dropped the ball. We could be a lot further ahead when it comes to domestic vaccine production ultimately, I mean, if, if Pfizer and Moderna or Johnson and Johnson, where if they're able to supply us with the vaccines we need, at least for now, it might seem like a bit of a moot point. And maybe we can finally catch up because I think we're going to need a lot of this production going forward. At the same time, too, right? I mean, you know, I, I think some of these companies could have been further along. Would they have had an approved vaccine by this point? I, I don't know. And so I think that, that's that's part of it, too, because just because Pfizer says we have a vaccine doesn't necessarily mean that someone can make Pfizer's vaccine for them. That's really Pfizer's call. So that that's part of the challenge, too. And from what it sounds like, the federal government tried to convince some of those companies to make vaccines here. We're unsuccessful. I think they finally now have convinced Novavax, which is another one that's not yet been approved, but perhaps down the road Novavax will begin making some vaccines in Canada. That That's part of the challenge, too, I think. Uh, This is Howie. Howie, welcome to the program.
14: Thanks for taking my call, Rob. Um, I I couldn't believe yesterday Dr. Dina Hinshaw on on the program at the end of the day there when she's typically browbeating Albertans. um, She contributed low case counts to vaccinations. Um, I I was just, I couldn't believe it. What was the exact quote?
2: Because I I saw some data that that shows, go ahead.
14: The exact quote was that she was. She said that due to vaccine, uh, low case counts were due to Albertans' social distancing, uh, following the rules, and vaccinations. Right. She it, it threw vaccinations on the back end of everything else, and it's it's a it's it it's a magnifying glass on how how the government is in denial of their own. Uh, inefficiencies uh their their shortfalls on on everything that they've that that they've done to operate and 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 manage ourselves through this and on top of that you just mentioned about you know maybe giving 12 million doses and then hoping it works out that's just absolute recklessness the government's already proved to us they cannot conduct themselves the way they need to and they're not capable of getting things done. So I think that would be extremely reckless to, to, to say, OK, well, maybe we could make this work. No, wrong decision. Sorry. not. Uh, I'd fire everybody who thought that way if you were working for me. The government can't get it done, so don't count on them to get it done. And uh, that's all I have to say. Thanks, Rob.
2: OK, Howie, appreciate the phone call. Uh, again, and, and just regarding what, what Hinshaw said, and unless I'm, I'm thinking of a different quote than what Howie heard, because, look, I, I don't think Alberta's chief medical officer of health is, is necessarily out there apologizing for, for the federal government. But I think her point was that because we've, we've managed to vaccinate most people in long term care, at least in, in provincial long term care sites, that that's part of the reason why cases have come down substantially in those settings. So, no, I don't think it would make sense to say, and I don't think she did say that the reasons why cases are down in the general population is because of vaccines, because obviously hardly anybody in the general population at this point has been vaccinated. But I do think it's it's fair to look at the impact it has had on long-term care centers, and those numbers are down, and that was something that, that she was definitely trumpeting yesterday. So I, I think that's what she was alluding to. That would be my read on it, and, unless maybe I'm missing something, because no, I, I mean... And if if she's saying what Aoi said, she said, then that wouldn't make any sense. I mean, the reason why numbers have come down in Alberta is because of the measures they put in place, basically. So maybe vaccines have played a small role, at least in terms of what we're seeing in long-term care centers. And maybe that's all she was trying to get across. So I, I don't think she's overstating the impact of vaccines at this point. I, I think you are seeing where it has had some impact in, in long-term care. And in fact, it's, you know, it's prompted a conversation. There was a story uh, from Post Media today, just on those lines. It says, infection rates among vulnerable care home residents who got the vaccine have plummeted in Alberta at a rate that brings excitement and relief. So when will it lead to family reunions? Infectious disease expert Lenora Saxinger said it really is kind of amazing. So that's where the conversation's at, that we've got people in long-term care vaccinated. The numbers are down uh, in in accordance with that. And so maybe we get to a point here where we can start to ease up on some of the restrictions in long-term care because I think everybody recognizes how difficult this whole situation has been on those who live in long-term care and how isolating all of these restrictions has has been. So if we're able to vaccinate those residents and bring those numbers down, that that probably can and, and does affect the sort of restrictions you need to have in place. So that that's that's good news. That is definitely good news. So we're seeing lower numbers, a lot fewer outbreaks. Let's keep that going, right? Anyway, so I, my read on it is that what uh, that's what Dr. Hinshaw was referring to. We've we've managed to do that and we're we're seeing the payoff. So that that's a positive development. Anyway, 403-974-8255. Like I say, we're going to talk a bit more about all of this on the program tomorrow. Um, The question of do we delay the, the second dose? Does it make sense to get as many vaccines into as many arms as possible, as quickly as possible? You know, we could do 12 million Canadians by June, potentially. There's certainly a lot of benefit that comes with the first dose. That would have some broader payoff in terms of bringing cases down even further. But then what assurances do we have that we'll have enough doses 12 weeks later to give everybody the second dose. That takes us into, I guess, September, wouldn't it? Which is what the government is talking about, but those are assurances. And do we get ourselves into a situation, like how we said, where we're counting on a certain number of vaccines being there? As we've seen over the first couple of months here with the vaccine rollout, there are no guarantees when it comes to vaccine availability. I mean, the good news is what we're hearing from companies like Pfizer, especially even now Moderna, uh, their ability to to make vaccines is improving consistently, and each time they come up with new forecasts, it's it's even more optimistic. Pfizer's talking about even potentially a total of two billion doses of vaccine that they're going to be able to generate this year, like that that's massive. But again. We still got to be careful about assumptions here. I think is how he said. So it it does create a bit of a dilemma, though. That if we know we're going to get to a certain number of vaccines by a certain date, doesn't make sense to sit on half of the vaccines that that arrive here. You know, on the one hand, you have the certainty of of a second dose available. On the other hand, there's the uncertainty of what might lie ahead. But like I said, we'll get into that tomorrow. Uh, just in our time remaining here, I want to take a quick second to say a big thanks to our Hero of the Month for the month of February, 770 CHQR, saluting Wade Kozak of the Kozak Financial Group, CIBC Wood Gundy, for their very generous support of the Calgary Children's Foundation, the Kozak Financial Group. Big believers in giving back to the community. Their donation to the Calgary Children's Foundation helps to support programs that help kids who are facing challenges, be they physical, developmental, financial, or social. That's why they are our Hero of the Month for the month of February. Again, a big thanks to Wade Kozak of the Kozak Financial Group, CIBC Wood Gundy. Uh, Also coming up on the program tomorrow, we're going to be speaking with the uh, commissioner of the Alberta Junior Hockey League, who will talk a bit about the announcement this week. Uh, The province has partnered with the WHL and the AJHL uh, to set up a 50-50 lottery to support junior hockey in Alberta. And it's been uh, a difficult stretch, obviously, for the AJHL starting their season in the fall and hoping maybe that they could complete that season, maybe get fans back in at some point. Everything had to shut down, of course, uh, into November and, and December and January well, and February. The AJHL is about to get going in March here. So we'll talk a bit about their plans for a restart, uh, how this uh, 50-50 jackpot is going to support junior hockey. So uh, Ray Bartoszek, he's the commissioner of the AJHL. He's going to join us uh, coming up on the program tomorrow. So we'll find out a bit more about that. Also, we're going to be speaking with Janice McKinnon, Remember the McKinnon uh, Report, uh, with the public, uh, School of Public Policy, University of Calgary, former Saskatchewan Finance Minister. And she's got some interesting thoughts on the question of taxes and whether Alberta has a revenue problem in addition to a spending problem. The Business Council of Alberta raising that issue last week. We'll hear from Janice McKinnon on tomorrow's program as well. So we got plenty in store for you tomorrow. That's where we got to leave it for today, though. Angela Cocot is in after the 1230 news. My name is Rob Breckenridge. We will talk to you tomorrow morning at 930. Take care.
6: Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.